This week, we present a technical segment offered in conjunction with our sponsor, Domain Tools, deobfuscating JavaScript to investigate phishing domains. In our second segment, we welcome Richard Mellick. He's a senior technology product marketing manager at Automox. We're going to talk about why waiting to deploy patches of any kind makes you a bigger target. In our final segment, we air two pre-recorded interviews from Black Hat 2019. Roman Sanikoff from Recorded Future, which is an awesome, I mean, awesome, awesome interview. Um, Roman was a, an interpreter for the FBI in Russian. And when I asked him questions about what's happening in the, in the underground, it's just awesome. Uh, Ray DeMeo of Versec will also join us as well. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Effectively securing your organization and its reputation requires a smarter approach. To maximize efficiency and minimize risk, security experts turn to Logarithm, the only leading solution built solely for security teams by a security team committed to your success. With NextGen SIM, user and entity behavior analytics, network traffic and behavior analysis, security automation and orchestration, and compliance, Logarithm provides security made smarter. Is your IT team ready to face the next implementation or upgrade? Do you have a pool of talented team members who are trained and ready to support your organization's growth? The right IT skills development platform can get you past the IT skills gap. With training content that's so engaging, some even call it binge-worthy learning, your team will watch and learn more with IT Pro TV. Get a free team trial of IT Pro TV today. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash IT Pro TV. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to graphwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. Hello, and welcome to Security Weekly. Before I introduce you to a man who puts the dick in dictionary, that's a Python dictionary, I'm going to throw it over to the laverty of the Patrick. Okay, okay, okay. Stop me if you've heard this one. A man walks into the bar. The bartender looks at him and says, it's Paul Asadorian. Welcome, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. It's episode 617, recorded on August 27th. Uh, 22nd, rather. I don't know where I got the 7 from. Uh, 2019 in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. Uh, to my left, Mr. Patrick Laverty. Hey, cheers, Paul. Cheers. Hey, the, old fashions. Yeah. The, yeah. Oh, the drink, yeah. Mm. I thought you were referring to me since I'm a little on the older side. but You are actually older than me, aren't I, you? I think I might have I think you are. a decade or so. It but doesn't, yeah. No way. Get out of here. Anyway, All right. uh, it's nice to have you yeah. uh, in studio. It's always good to come down. This and you're still working for Rapid7? I is am, that yeah. Okay. So yep. doing pen testing? Doing all that pen testing stuff. Sweet. Oh, a lot of fun. Hack all the things. And uh, speaking of testing pens, Mr. Joff Thire is also on the lines. You're doing more pen testing or coding or 
teaching. It sounds like teaching lately, right? Yeah, actually, it's it's been a bit, it's been a mix of uh, malware development for the red teams uh, at Black Hills, and also teaching and and more leadership stuff, and less actually hands on pen testing. Although I do get in the mix there a little bit as well, so a little bit of everything. It's awesome. Uh, Mr. Lee Neely is on the line. He's got his beads. Yes. I'm going to leave I it got, at that. I got my Kakui nuts. I brought my nuts. Okay. Get, <laughs> Live not, from Wailea and maybe, Maui. Maybe if your nuts weren't on screen, we, we'd appreciate that. That's Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, well, nuts to you. You're just nuts. That's why we love you, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, when it so all gets beaded up in the end. You're mm -hmm. in Hawaii on vacation, and you're here doing a show. I'm actually... Uh, which sells with me. Actually, I am in Hawaii for credit union uh, director training. One of my things I do, I am the tre board treasurer at my credit union. And uh, so occasionally we go to a conference for training. This In the past, we've done it in Vegas. This year, we're trying the one in Maui. So I far, mean, I like why the not? Weather and right. the view better. Yeah, right. That's awesome. Just happens to be in Hawaii, so good for you. you gotta go. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I, yeah, lo I love that comment. It's like, um, yeah, well, so why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why not? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, we've got some exciting news about the Security Weekly webcast program. We're now partnered with ISC Squared as an official CPE provider. If you attend any of our webcasts or would like to view our archives even, one CPE credit per webcast. That's what we negotiated. One credit per webcast. One for one. Register for our upcoming webcast with Zane Lackey of Signal Sciences. Now, I'm very excited about this one because I've been working with Doug Coborn. Co Coborn? Coborn. Uh, Coburn, uh, and speaking with Zane, and I today actually we deployed Signal Sciences into our application. Um, I've done some scanning, and it's giving us results, and it's it's really really cool. And I can now like firsthand testimonial deploying Signal Sciences is like really super super easy. I mean, our, our application has some issues with deployment, and like it's still I put it in dev, it pushed all the way up through the train, and it was the dashboard was being populated it was really super easy it was awesome and doug was yeah. awesome i mean th those folks also really know their stuff too doug's like oh no you want you're on this okay you want this config here i'm just going to paste it in the chat and it was it, it's awesome copy paste you, know, you, it in. you could have stopped in the middle of the sentence and said our application has issues and yeah. <laughs> we would we got it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we went signal sciences on is because it's got issues. We want to try and fix as many of those as possible. So, yeah, uh, and, and monitor for security as well as you know, it's going to be exposed to the internet and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I, I would I would call that proactive, Paul Asadorian. That is proactive. It is proactive. Yeah, and so we're going to look at what's going on in our app. And we're going to talk about it on the webcast. I mean, how about that? Uh, talk about awesome. practical experience, right? Uh, Ian McShane from Endgame is also joining us. Ian's awesome. He was a former analyst, I, th I think, with Gar Gardner or, or Forrester, one of the two or both, uh, and now works for, for Endgame. He's, he's awesome. He's awesome. Don't miss that one. Uh, and Stephen Smith and Jeff Brocher of Logarithm. Logarithm has been just a long-standing sponsor for a long time, and uh, they're just they're awesome. One of the great places to work, too. The folks that, like, they don't leave. Once they get to Logarithm, that's it. They don't go anywhere. Securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. Uh, do I have another announcement? I do. We will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia, October 10th through the 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a $100 discount to attend a two day, the two-day conference. Use the discount code HH19SW. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash Hacker Halted. 
Jeff Mann will be speaking. I will be giving one of the keynotes. So make sure that you check that out. Uh, and now our technical segment, which uh, is going to be a lot of fun. Talk a little bit about domains, uh, reversing some really stupid JavaScript obfuscation. Maybe talk a little bit about Python, Joff. I'd like to hear from you as to how we might use Python to help us in this investigation as well. Awesome. Um, you want to hear about my Python? Is that I what do. You're I do. No, well, not yours. I mean, the the one, oh. on, the one on the internet, I guess. Or oh man! Anyway. <laughs> what, how do you know his is not on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you nailed it. There's right a there. non-zero <laughs> chance of that. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, wow. And also a little bit, a little bit about domain tools, uh, which is a, a, a software from our sponsors that I use in uh, domain investigations, which is really really awesome uh and there'll be a follow-up blog post to this which will probably talk a little more about the domain tools application and how you can use it so this whole journey starts when i got a phishing email um now i actually had to go dig and look for this uh, a phishing email that i could use in this investigation <laughs> so i dug around in my inbox and i'm like well that's kind of interesting because i have an american express card like a lot of people do they got an email and it says you've got some irregular activity, which I mean, I take my fiber. My activity is pretty regular. Yep. Usually, I don't know about you. You get older. You get, <laughs> fiber, fiber helps. Right. Uh, so I'm pretty regular. And they're like, you know, your account's on hold and blah, blah, it's blah. Important. And I'm, It's important to take your Metamucil, Paul. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, I looked at this and I'm like, well, that's definitely a phishing email because, well, you know, the first thing is they had to attach the HTML to the email instead of just sending me a link, which I thought that was kind of weird. Uh, but I was like, hey, I've got, I've got a file. I've got some stuff that I can look at. Now, obviously, the other thing is it's fraudulent because if you look at the from address, right, it's American Express at rugjam.com. No, that, that could be real. That could be real. Right? I think rugjam is just another name for American Express. I think that's what they were trying to get at in this phishing email. I, I think in Canadian, it's, it's correct. It's called rugjam. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Or yep. maybe in Hawaiian, it's rugjam yeah, is American Express, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so also grammatically, this email is a hot mess, really? which is the other tell tail hmm. sign. Now, I also, I'm kind of with Ira Winkler on this one. I don't think we need to train our users to look at the from address and the, the grammar, right? Like there should be clear policies that like, hey, if you work for the company and you're managing company credit cards, like if you get an email, don't do anything with the email, either call the credit card company or log in and verify before you do anything. Right, even clicking on the link in in the email should be the best practice. I, I know somebody that wants to give a keynote address on this kind of thing, mm -hmm. and the entire address is going to be what? Don't click on shit. Mm -hmm. that, that's the whole thing. Right. That's all you need to know. Don't click okay, on shit. I, I now want to I want to give the counter address of go click on everything you right. You, <laughs> click on. I, you know what? I don't. It's not even about clicking or not clicking. I think it's about following a procedure that says when you get when this happens, do this, not that. And, and clicking could be like, don't take a phone call and have someone do something, mm -hmm. you know, don't click on a link you get in messenger, that kind of, you know, all those chat, like whatever it is, like don't fall for the scam. Rather, if this condition happens, right. you go to the credit card site, 
log in and do or call the credit card company, right? So that you want to have your if else finally uh, for what you want to do. Yeah, yeah try, accept, right. else finally. Yeah, right. Exactly. So or, or we, need, we need like a bumper sticker saying, "Your brain should tick before you click." <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> That's a good one. So I started analyzing the HTML, and I was like, "Well, this is kind of interesting." And it, you know, the first thing I saw was, "Well." This HTML is loading some JavaScript from a .nl domain. That's kind of interesting. So then um, if we cut to my screen, I thought the JavaScript was kind of interesting, right? So they're basically declaring a new uh, array and they're setting elements. Is that the right term? I did use the right term. Every language has its own. I've been in Python so long. They're not called elements. In are they dictionary elements? They are. Right? Is that right? Uh, array elements are probably array fine. elements is pretty yeah. agnostic of language, right? Well, yeah. so okay. anyway, got, got <laughs> I'm gonna say elements. All right, so we get yeah. an array Stuff. with a, a lot of elements in it that are basically what look like random numbers, and then we've got a loop that's going through it, and they're essentially using the math function. And I won't just—I don't pretend to understand exactly how all of this works. Joff may be able to decipher it, and others way quicker than than I can. And I was like, "Well, my first thought actually was I could write a Python script that can parse JavaScript." And then I'm like, very quickly, I'm like, "That's probably a really bad idea." I mean, that I, that sounds like fun. Don't get me wrong; I was on the side of fun and and cool and nerdy, but I was like, that could take a really long time. Um, so uh, you can see there where I've commented out the document dot write, right, which writes to the, the DOM, mm -hmm. uh, and I've replaced it with console.log because I'm like, well, you know, fancy JavaScript. I'm like, I really, rather than write something in a different language, I really just need to run it in JavaScript, and JavaScript will do the work of actually decoding this for me. So I'm like, well, I wait, can wait, run wait, wait. I missed something, Paul. You yeah. said you com commented out your dong and replaced no, it dom, with... No, dom. The dom. The document dot write. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, the part yes. where it writes it to the, <laughs> the browser. Dong. Not the screen, the browser, right? In uh, console.log. So I'm like, well, if I want to run JavaScript, I, can I just use Node on the command line? Because Node runs JavaScript locally. So I changed one line to, instead of writing it to the dom, I write it to <laughs> the console. Yep. And I run it in Node. So, like, this wasn't anything, like, earth-shattering, but I'm like, this is actually a pretty valid way to, if you have a JavaScript sample, be able to run it. And I'm sure there's lots of tools you could have uploaded it to, and it might have, you know, expanded that out for you. They're probably just running Node in the background, so. But this seems pretty straightforward. Straightforward, right? You could, so, you could have gone really serious and went out and got SpiderMonkey and, you know, right. to 10. Yeah, and you can load it in a browser too. I mean, that's the other way to do it would be to load it in a browser, but I'm a command line kind of guy. I wanted to just analyze. Oh, the other thing was I didn't want to load this code inside my browser and have it do bad things inside my browser. I could spin up a VM, which I did, and you know, went to some of these sites and ran it in a, a VM, which you know, then you can just revert to snapshot, and and that's certainly valid approach as well. Sure. So, but what was happening here was. The first piece of JavaScript basically decoded, so it was multi-stage decoding, right? Decoded into a second piece of JavaScript that I, I basically just did the same thing, right? Then I took that JavaScript and I, I ran Node against it. Again, I replaced document.write with console.log and I ran it again. And finally, uh, I got another, uh, so I got an HTML <laughs> file. Uh, so after the, I ran it the first time, it showed me JavaScript, uh, when I ran that as JavaScript uh, or the file 
it was HTML to JavaScript, then JavaScript, another JavaScript. When I ran that, it produced HTML. So it was like a multi-nesting kind of thing. So in this one, I'm getting HTML that is really just a script tag that's calling more JavaScript, <laughs> which is kind right. of interesting how they're trying to really go through great lengths to hide. Another clear American Express site. Yeah, and then exactly. So then this JavaScript, I expanded out, which was more uh, obfuscated JavaScript that finally... I don't know this is like the fourth or fifth iteration of me basically un unpack and each time it was a different domain, mind you. So keep that's the whole purpose of this text segment was each time it was loading the HTML and or JavaScript from a different domain. And so I'm just happily going along, deobfuscating my, my JavaScript, collecting the domains that uh, it's hitting, until finally I got the actual phishing site, which is pulling content uh, it, via JavaScript in some cases from the real MX site. So they did a decent job. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. Joff and Patrick know, right? Like you can pull elements from. Sure. There are ways in yeah. which you can yeah, yeah. Uh, seed and, and encode your JavaScript so it only runs on your site. So if an attacker does try and do this, it'll it'll get flagged. You can put canary tokens in your JavaScript to know if it's getting executed on other sites <coughs> as well. Um, so then, you know, the full, the full website, basically, it looked like an Amex page that was asking you to log in. However, there was one pretty critical difference when you when I pulled apart all that code was where it sent the form the post for the form went to uh, a site in Germany <laughs> yeah yeah I was gonna say that's not MX <laughs> no it's heilgeist64.de forward slash tilde hue forward slash hh.php because that's totally a legit MX mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, and I'm site. totally unfriending Hugh now after he did that. Right? Come on. I bet he's got a small python. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but that gave me yet another uh, domain to investigate. So uh, I started plugging this into uh, domain tools, basically. Oh, sweet. And so one of the domains on there. So now what's interesting, before I get into this, what I found interesting was one of the earlier domains was when I, I went to it, like I said, I spun up a VM and I went to it and I ran all the files through VirusTotal and it found stuff as well. Um, but I wanted to see what these sites really were. And they, to me, what it looked like were they were sites that had been hacked that the attacker placed some dropper code on and that was part of basically their chain of events that would happen when they do this phishing attack and I'm sure it happens in malware as well. And I think that's awesome because... There was some statistic that I may even flag the story, uh, which we're not going to cover this week, but I did read an article that said that the overwhelming majority of new domains <clears throat> that are registered are, in fact, mm -hmm. malicious. And so w the attackers know this now that, like, when I register a new domain and I need to do bad stuff with it, or even if I just register a new domain, that in of itself is anomalous. So, what they're doing in this case is they're looking on the internet, which you can scan in you know less than less than a day certainly probably less than half a day right if you're looking for a specific thing depending on your infrastructure scan the internet really fast find some vulnerable wordpress servers right find some web vulnerabilities and go compromise those sites now those are just placeholders for my code in some stage right you realize your infrastructure is going to get burned along the way like i said this was a like four or five different stages each of those four or five different stages was calling back to a different domain. And that domain could be perfectly legitimate. It could have a really high score on 
all the threat intelligence sources going that heist heil geist 64.de totally good valid domain it's been valid for a long time it was registered 10 years ago everything is good but the attackers just compromised that and put their put their code on it it's interesting that's something as pen testers we we we, we i mean we could do but we'd get in a lot of trouble for and potentially yeah. it's also a violation of the cfaa <laughs> well to compromise someone else's site hey, and hey, hey, store files said- on it i mean details but you know don't do that we can't do that right you said something kind of interesting along the way there and that was uh the the majority percentage of domains registered are actually potentially evil or malicious i wonder if anybody actually has a percentage on that yeah i don't remember and we're not going to do stories so yeah i I don't mean to interrupt your train no no it's okay yeah i I don't remember what that stat was uh for that but they they, it is out there you can search for it you know i'm I'm wondering a tweet but my my kind of gut feeling is it's probably like you know something like more than Half. eighty to one or ninety to. Or yeah, could be. I think, it's, I think it's pretty high. I imagine. So if you go so across all the other way around, go ahead, Lee. Go ahead, Lee. You know we know that a lot of these new domains are malicious. Are malicious intent. What's the poor sod with a small business who's trying to get his domain up and going to going to deal with? He's going to be fingerprinted right. as, as as malicious. That's yeah, kind yeah. of blow for those guys. I mean, well, they're not it, exactly, yeah. you know. It's a great point, Lee. I don't, I don't think that's the only indicator, right? Is if it's new. I think there's other indicators mm-hmm. that, uh, and it's it's really unfair. Like if it has malware on it. Like if it's not <laughs> .com .net or yep. you know one of the popular ones. If it comes from another country, if it's .dot you know .cx or or whatever yeah. or .dot .cn and not it's argue. new. I'm like maybe it's maybe it's malicious, right? Or you know, how many people have visited that domain mm-hmm. in since it was registered in my environment? In other words, go back in the past, you know, couple of months and go, no one's ever visited this domain before. It was registered within the last three months. Um you know, and it was loading JavaScript that was uh, obfuscated in some way so those things together i think is what really right. makes an indicator i don't necessarily believe it's a a sole indication although based on the stats pretty good one but you're right yeah they're all the good ones that are registered new yeah i i also saw another story this week not that we're going over stories tonight but <clears throat> where with these kind of things that are happening that you're referring to with this whole kind of chain of sites, it was kind of interesting to see that there's no honor among thieves where a lot of times there's going to be a, a web shell already installed on a server yeah. and somebody else is jumping in and stealing yes. using that web shell that bot for their part of the, the <coughs> botnet as well, which is probably also one of the reasons that sometimes when you do some of those forensics on web shells, once in a while you see them with passwords on them. Yeah, or you see multiple attackers are on the same yeah, site. Absolutely. They don't even know that each other is there, right? They've used the same vulnerability, right. which hasn't been patched, to get into the system. And so now there's like three different campaigns running off the same. And usually that will bump <laughs> up its score, right? Usually once well, that happens. How about the, the place where you and I worked once together? Oh, yeah. And, I saw that all the time. And there. I got to do the forensics one time when our web server got compromised. Yeah. And th- there was more than 90 on there. That I C99.php, remember? <laughs> There's a lot there was lots of iterations. There was variations of that oh, one yeah, too. That was a popular I, one. I still have I, I kept all of them. Yeah. And some of them were, were pretty good. Like uh, the the same group that made uh Javi also had their own web shell on there, which was 
Really nice. Yeah. Uh, so I find that in doing these investigations, what I found is that some of the domains will like usually be okay and, main, and, and maintain that state. Um, but somewhere along the way, their domains start to get flagged, right? I think the more nefarious they kind of get with those domains, and, and let's be frank, this is a phishing email. This isn't, they're serving malware. But I think what happens is they've got other campaigns running or the scenario we just described, another group gets in the same server and start serving malware from it. And then that site get, ends up on a blacklist. And you see, if you cut to my screen, you can see that this claudia.ml um, was uh, in in my investigation as I went through the multiple domains. Now I switch to this one and it's got a score of 79. So zero being the most legitimate domain in the world, 100 being the most awful, the Moss Isley of domains is 100, right? Uh, and so this has a score of 79 and it even indicates, and I think this is if you have like the professional edition, uh, if we can cut to my screen, uh, this particular domain that was in the change, thank you, in the chain, thank you, was uh, 46 for 50 uh, for phishing, 79 for malware. Um, proximity is like in proximity to other bad domains. Where does it score? So like if the same person registered this domain that also registered another domain that has a score above a certain amount, that also factors into one of the sub scores. So Domain Tools does a great job of collecting this information from multiple sources. They have uh, partners and sensors throughout the internet that are monitoring domains and subdomains uh, for activity and correlating that all together for you. So basically, as an analyst, I get to go to one place and say, yeah, this domain's bad. It's got a score of 79, and basically the threat profile is it's got ma it's serving malware at some point. Yeah, so I, I, I really bad. like that part that you talked about that they look <laughs> at other sites that are around it or other sites that that owner has registered because as yeah. you're talking, that was one of the things I was thinking about is what about just like Joe's pet store.com or it's just some small business wants to run a pet store yep. and that he gets compromised. Mm -hmm. You you don't I, want that yeah. kind of person to get knocked offline. Whereas that kind of analytics could really right. help where, you know, Joe's pet store hasn't registered other domains. So he's really not in the business. His of proximity score stuff. is probably going to be low. However, what can influence that is, Let's say there's a hosting provider mm -hmm. <coughs> that's horribly insecure, and mom and pop shops are hosting their websites on yep. it. Five dollars, and they hosting provider has vulnerabilities, and they compromise multiple sites on there, right? Yep. And those sites start getting really bad scores. And what the engines will do is say, and I think rightfully so, right? Basically, domains that share this IP address, domains that share this DNS name, domains that share um, these specific uh, routes. What are the classes of routes called in BGP? Uh, Joff, I'm having a mental blank now. Uh, yeah, uh, cl classes of routes of BGP. What? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, like, I missed you. Yeah, the the like section of the internet that you're in from your hosting provider is also. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Auto autonomous system numbers, AS numbers. AS right. number, right? Yeah. <laughs> your AS number is also associated with a lot of bad activity, right? Thank you. Mental blank. Then you're going to get classified as probably being in proximity to stuff that's bad because you're on the hosting provider. But if the hosting provider is compromised, you've maybe not earned that score, but your hosting provider by proxy has earned that score for you. So, so if you're hanging out with scumbags, you're the yes, nature exactly. Yeah. What was it? My high school, my high school graduate by hand. 
my high school graduation, Lee, was one of the speeches was, you can't fly like an eagle if you hang with the chickens, right? So host your domain exactly. somewhere where you can fly like, fly like eagles. No, don't host it with the chickens. That's it. So I'm sorry. What Just were you saying? About how much that would? How long would that have taken for you to right? correlate all that stuff together by hand? Oh, I mean, I and dude, I, you, we used to do. And, and, and yeah. Patrick talked about the universe. We used to do this by hand. We used to oh, look at the domains and then start doing these investigations manually. It'd take forever. Yeah, to, to get it to this level is impossible to do manually. Yeah, and, and I mean they have an API. You can hook this into your yeah. uh, your stuff. So, uh, so it's really awesome. So cool. I wrote a, uh, a DNS haiku this week, but I'll, I'll let you keep going, Paul. Yeah, so I did run some of the files <laughs> through uh, VirusTotal as well, which Domain Tools partners with, uh, and, and that's just kind of like an added step. And it, it did you know, flag some of these as also uh, being associated with malicious activities, some of the uh, various detection engines and such. <clears throat> Recognize, for example, this JavaScript URL. I know it's hard to see, but they did recognize that JavaScript URL by 10 engines, right, well, there uh, was, was malicious, right? Um, and, and this was one of the ones that I showed on the screen, the .nl domain. Uh, Bitdefender had already flagged that. And, and, you know, it takes various engines different times. Uh, and again, domain tools is calling from different sources. So, you know, some of those earlier ones may be caught now by uh, domain tools, right, or may eventually be caught based on activity. But somewhere in the chain, they ended up, uh, racking up their score for one of the domains. So, uh, and then I, I did go to some of the sites uh, that were actually hosting this. This one, I believe, was WordPress, uh, and looks like someone's like photo blog that was compromised. Uh, did, did you notice what version of WordPress? Uh, I didn't. Okay, uh, and it was probably one of the upload uh, photo upload plugins because oh, yeah. those are notorious. Tim Thumb or something. Yeah, those are notoriously vulnerable. I don't know if I have another one in there. Oh, yeah, this was one of the other ones in there, too. Oh, and what's nice is from Virus Total, right? You can use that as another source in your investigation, get people's comments and say, like, basically, this person saying, yeah, like, yeah, I saw this. It was an attachment. It was obfuscated. It was part of an attack. So <clears throat> that can help you. Then what you can do is inside Domain Tools, take that list and those list of domains and the really bad domains that they're associated with and create an automation that basically just goes and blocks this in your network, right? However you do that through DNS, through some other kind of proxy or whatever solution it is, you're basically collecting domains that today are being used for phishing attacks and it can kind of look ahead in the future and say the domains that are related to this, the people who register these, like basically just blacklist all their domains too. So if they try again or we get more phishing attacks, we're, we're covered uh, I, even before they happen. I wonder if there's a way to block it just by that JavaScript file. You could, yes. That gets tricky, though, because you got to reach into every single HTTP request response and and do some funky stuff there. So, so do you think you could have written something that would have done all the steps you did with with uh, deobfuscating and and collecting and changing, you know, document right to the console log autom automatically for you? Joff, you mentioned a tool earlier. What was that tool? Uh, I mentioned a tool earlier. I don't remember. I mean, unless I was talking about was you, Paul. Oh, spider monkey. <laughs> Jeez, spider uh, monkey. Patrick spider remembered. Yeah, I'm, I'm hey. the one that's had the least to drink, I guess. <laughs> no, it wasn't a tool. It was it's Firefox's JavaScript engine. Uh, that's oh. what spider monkey is. I got um, you. So you could funnel it through. But in terms of um, <clears throat> automatically deobfuscating each layer, 
Is that is there tools that exist? I'm sure there's stuff that exists to do that, commercial or, or and or open source, probably both. Yeah, there, right? there, there probably is. I'm just not in the business of doing it. Um, and I would end up doing it by hand, which well sucks. Yeah, um, I know Cap uh, I, I, Cap Tipper. Have, have you used Cap Tipper before? No, I haven't. I've used Burp plugins though to do uh, deobfuscation and, and uh, beautification of uh, JavaScript. Sure. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, that's uh, that's more on the pen testing side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could totally script something yourself that uses Node to, yep. to do that. Uh, Cap Tipper will also, I think, pull apart and help you deobfuscate JavaScript as well as pull files out of uh, packet captures and things like that. So if you had a, a PCAP system, you could certainly do it uh, do it that way as well. So, And I'm sure there's other tools. That it, I mean, this is just how you do a manual you know, investigation. Yeah, you had a one-off to do. Exactly. And you may end up with that too. I mean, you may end up with the, your automated systems yep. basically flag this hunk of web code of any kind right and when you go in and do the investigation i mean you gotta it's got enough indicators that you're like i gotta pull this apart again there's probably tools that exist i would imagine that you could automatically send this off to and have it do exactly what i did on an automated basis right pull everything apart pull I, out I, all the domains I, pull out all the ip addresses right john I, I would i would make a bet that one of our listeners knows the more answer blue team side probably knows exactly the tool to use um if not now, someone that, should create some for free yeah, and commercial like we right. right even if they right. exist i think it's a cool exercise to do uh right. as well well the reason yeah. i asked the question was be, was partly i was wondering if something exists but also with all the work paul you've done as a late with automation and scripting i'm thinking you were already on it uh, I one of the things based on this is yes, exactly that. Some designs that could do this, uh, particularly at scale, yeah. which again, I mean, exist in in various forms today. Um, yeah. But I think also fun to kind of do on your own as an exercise. So it's all good. Yeah, th this would also be uh, something fun for my fellow friends that are also studying for the OSCP, where there's one particular machine in there where this is exactly what you have to kind of start with right. where there's a bunch of obfuscated javascript is kind of the first step to get in yeah so yeah i'm sure other people that have studied for the oscp probably know which machine that is but yeah this kind of thing picking it apart is something that's a, a good skill to have absolutely again i think cap tipper is a tool if you're interested in this kind of forensic analysis cap tipper is the tool and that that uses pcaps uh as input and then allows you to do things like this, but inside of the PCAP, right? Pull out files, pull out certain conversations. Uh, there was a webcast with someone where we talked about it. It was one of the ones that stands out where I was like, that's really cool. Yeah, I see. That's a GitHub project. Yes. A lot of code. Really, really cool tool. A lot of code, too. I started looking through their, their repo. It's Python. I, and it is all written in Python. Hopefully Python 3 and not, not 2.7 because... Then they have a challenge on their hands, yep, much that's, like I do. That's awesome. Cool. Any other questions? I will do a follow-up where I will show the uh, domain tools interface in a little more detail, and you'll see that in my upcoming blog post. So make sure you check it out. Awesome. It's Python. Paul, that's seven. really awesome. I mean, the, putting all that stuff together is just it, all in one dashboard like that. So nice. Yeah, I really, you, you know. Bet. I, I like having that tool in my arsenal, certainly, because it just saves it saves me so much time. So, you know, 
you, there's lots of options you, you can get. You can get access to the API or the interface itself. It's a collaborative tool, so I can share my investigations uh, with others. I can export my investigations. Uh, so it's fully integrated into your, your SecOps team uh, for doing that. Yeah, yeah so. I would think anybody that's doing blue team stuff, that's a must-have. You should absolutely have that tool. Absolutely. And oh, then you, you, you can automate it with the API. So yep. like, it's, I would just Start take my list of domains, <laughs> tell me what you know about them, take the scores, and, and bring that yeah. in. So. Cool. That that and maybe a rub text or whatever it's called. Was it rub rub text robotext whatever robotext? Wait, wait, yeah, yeah. What's Jeff rubbing now? I don't know. We don't want. I'm to not find rubbing out. anything. I, I was playing. I was playing with my fidget spinner. Actually, <laughs> it's awesome. It's, it's all it's all Lee's fault. <laughs> yes. Security Weekly colored fidget spinner. It is anyway. I, I said I sent Jeff a box of fidget spinners. He did. So. He sent me a box of fidget spinners. Like, oh, 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 just just so while we're on that topic, uh, Lee identified uh, item number one. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Is that a that's bottle? That's the dad open? fidget spinner. That's for that, opening that's, your beer. That's the dad fidget spinner, right? Yeah. You don't Very nice. Make make sure you keep this one close. These things drive my dog crazy. The noise or something. He, <laughs> he gets all freaking nuts. Anyway. Securityweekly.com forward slash domain tools. If you want to learn more, make sure you check out my blog post in the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Recorded Future, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, go to recordedfuture.com forward slash security weekly and sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Data. Every day, you'll receive an email with the top results for trending technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Subscribe today and stay ahead of cyber attacks. Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs, their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. A couple of quick announcements. We are running a Hacker Halted interview series at the conference in October. If you're attending and would like to sponsor an interview, please submit to our conference request form at securityweekly.com forward slash booking. Select Hacker Halted. If you work for a company and you know you're going to have a presence at the event as part of a sponsorship for your company, it's great, great reason to bug your marketing team to go to securityweekly.com slash booking. You can uh, basically sponsor an interview with us. We record it live at the conference and release it in our shows. It's actually one of the like cheapest and easiest ways to get in on the Security Weekly show and uh, get your brand out there. So many of the big East Coast cybersecurity trade shows take place in crowded cities like Boston and New York, where parking's a nightmare and it'll cost you an arm and a leg. However, this year's Compass Security Symposium is being held at Twin Rivers Casino in Lincoln, Rhode Island, just 15 minutes outside Providence. 
they'll have plenty of free and easy parking. Speakers include social engineering expert Chris Head Nagy and myself, who's doing the keynote. Uh, I think, no, I'm just giving a talk there. Is it a keynote or talk? I don't know. I'm speaking there. Whatever. Just a talk. Whatever. <laughs> just a talk. I've been demoted to just, just a talk. Maybe had Nagy's the... Probably had Nagy's the keynote. He's a lot better looking than I am. But uh, use the discount code SW2019. Save $20 on registration. What's missing from that announcement is when is this taking place? It's... September... September... Yeah. September 25th. On that date. Yes. And it's awesome. at a casino. It's at a casino. Well, it's Twin Rivers. Yeah. I mean, it's... Well, th- they have sports betting there now. Casino. Well, can, <laughs> Air quotes. Yeah, but you casino. can do this and you can push buttons and... Don't, sure. Don't they have table games now? No, it's... Anyway. Okay. <laughs> there we go. They got table games. Richard Mellick has spent over a decade advancing through the security industry with his considerable experience and considerable focus on the stories surrounding ransomware, hacking, and cyber attacks. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to have you. Uh, here on the show tonight, and I I love the topic because we got I think a little controversial in our I think this is going to be a little controversial to be quite I, honest. Yeah, I agree. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna upset a few people. I I think so, and I mean they should just then re, like gather themselves back up and go patch some stuff. Is basically absolutely the, my advice. I won't speak for you because you're representing your employer and all. <laughs> I mean, I could fire myself if I wanted to, but <laughs> I'm going out on a limb and just saying, like, patch your stuff, basically. And, yeah, and that's yeah. really – so from my perspective, um, what I've come down to lately, right, and I spent seven years working for Tenable. Uh, before that, I was pen tester. Before that, I was responsible for applying a lot of patches. And so, like, I, I, I get a lot of the different aspects that go into – when you apply a patch from multiple different perspectives. I'm not saying the world's foremost expert on like how you patch stuff, but like I've been there in some capacity. And when I look at what's happening today, I'm like, you know what? All those debates that we've had over it, what criticality should a vulnerability be before we patch it and you know what what sensitive data is on the system and like i understand there's there's a formula and all that stuff for patching and we may think about how easy it is we may think about uh what types of systems what types of data and all those different factors right if we have compensating controls and all those things and i'm kind of like today going like you know what just throw that out the window and just apply the patches test them before you roll them out apply them to something test it and if it passes testing, just push it out. Don't worry if it's for whatever criticality, whether there's even a vulnerability associated with it or not. Because what I've observed over the, you know, this is like our 15th year doing the show. What I've observed covering vulnerabilities and security for all these years, uh, and as long as, you know, I'm on this earth covering vulnerabilities, what I've seen so, so far is that there's vulnerabilities, of course, that we don't know about that attackers in nation states know about. There's vulnerabilities that have been reported, and that's cool. There's vulnerabilities that are misreported, right? There's ones that say this version is not vulnerable to that particular vulnerability when it really is. There's vulnerabilities that come back that you apply the patch, and I can apply another patch. So basically, my, my recommendation is really around, it, it sums up as, like, just apply the patches. Test them, make sure it doesn't break stuff. That's a different different thing, right? Your business has to run. But 
just apply them. Don't worry. Just do it. And that's one of the reasons why we at Security Weekly, and I'll give you a plug. They're a sponsor and all, but we adopted Automox. Because I'm like, look, we just need to apply patches. Like, I, I, it does. We can't have one of our systems down. Patching is critical to that, not just for vulnerabilities, but we need to main, make sure our stuff is stable uh, and running and supporting all the latest stuff. So let's just get it patched. And that would be quite the trophy for somebody to say, "Oh, I, I hacked <coughs> Security Weekly." And I mean, there's been incidents. They, I mean, they're, they're coming after you. And, and I'm not gonna lie, there have been incidents when they are. We deal with them. We we talk about them on the show. We disclose them. Uh, and, and and move on with life. And my whole thing right now is like, look, we're we're pushing for in because largely I've spent the past couple of months developing and building a DevOps and CI/CD tool chain. I'm like, we just need to push forward in everything that we do. Push patches out if it breaks, push push more patches and or redact those and, and push other ones. We just constantly need to be moving forward. So uh, Richard and you had what I thought was a good analysis to kind of like bring me down to reality a little bit as well. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> I think I think uh, one. Thanks for the plug. I can't I can't really uh, complain about that. If my job do is done, you've you've already right? talked about like, it. We use you guys, and we do, and yeah, we have for a long time. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I think what we're running into is is it's not just the fact that we are not patching. We in the industry are not patching at a good enough pace. It's the fact that we're dealing with an onslaught of patches, and this onslaught of patches is making us slow down. So we're looking at 14 days until we're deploying out any kind of patch. And what that has done, you brought up Tenable. Tenable recently released some research that said that uh, hackers have seven days to, from the announcement of a vulnerability. Um, I'm sorry, let me say 14 days from the announcement of the vulnerability to get into a system before the patch is out there. The, on average, it takes them about 10 days to build out the, the vulnerability, uh, but at most are seeing around six days. And they're able to apply that before the uh, systems are hardened. And you, you bring up this good point. Do your test, get it out there. It shouldn't be taking 48 hours. It shouldn't be taking two weeks to do a test on your systems. If you've done proper inventory control, if you know the systems that you have, if you know the products that you have, if you know what's going to break, we all know Java's going to break when you update it. We all know Flash is going to break when you update it. Right. We know that's going to impact something. If you know that, take the necessary steps. Have a proper plan in place. If you build out a solid, uh, solid foundation in the beginning, in the end, your job's going to be easier. And that also goes to the side of once you start to automate the easier stuff, you can focus on the more difficult stuff. You don't always have to automate uh, JavaScript. You don't have to automate Flash. But you want to get to a point where you're automating as much as you can, including the testing procedures, mm -hmm. and then getting your network secure, your infrastructure for secure. Now, Richard, I want to go back to uh, having a solid foundation because I think that in IT, and it's, uh, bear with me, it's a terrible analogy, but it's going to make sense. Uh, we're building like multiple houses, right? Some of our houses were built a long time ago, right? So that foundation's been built. We've built on top of it. And essentially what we need to do is we need to tear it down and we need to restart and rebuild. And that takes time, right? We think about renovating a house or whatever. Again, it's not a great analogy, but when we go build something new, right? Like if I had to take the, let's say, application I'm working on now and rebuild it from scratch, I would do it completely different. And I would have a really awesome foundation with the tools and technology I have today. I think the the one of the really huge problems we deal with today is we're not always building a house from the ground up, right? 
we got a house and we got to keep renovating it. And, and, and at the same time, we all have to live in it together as well. Yeah. And that's hard. When I'm building a new house, no one's living in it and it's a lot yeah. easier. So I guess in that sense, my analogy makes sense. You kind of get where, where I'm going at that. Like some things are going to move faster because we're building new. Other things are going to take longer because we're building on top of an existing foundation that could be complete crap as well. Yeah, and you bring up a really valid point. You and I have been in this industry, everyone on this on this uh, show has been in this industry long enough to know that 15, 20 years ago, the technology that we're working with today was barely a blip on somebody's yeah, mind, but agree. maybe being thought about. But what we're dealing with now is advanced technology. And the more technology that comes out there is the bigger, the bigger of a target that you have on your back. But if you are not focusing on at least maintaining your foundation, even if you've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, you have to focus on your foundation. And that can even go down to the foundational controls that you're implementing. I love the CIS guide. Uh, the top, the first six guides is, you know, do inventory con uh, control and management, understand the software assets that you have, you know, do risk mitigation, vulnerability scanning. Are you monitoring your audit logs? These kinds of steps are the foundational elements that so many groups are forgetting to do. It's like, maintaining the foundation of a house. You can tear down a house and rebuild off the same foundation over and over and over again, as long as it is maintained. It could be 200 year old concrete. That's okay, but it has to be maintained from the very beginning. And if it isn't, you can start to take those steps to implement those procedures to get it up to code, up to mm -hmm. uh, a state of security. And that's what we need to get everybody to. So 15, 20 years ago, the IT budgets were small. Companies built it up. You know, the IT team is the, only, is the team that you only go to when something's gone wrong. Mm. Now, they're still dealing with a smaller budget, but they're having to manage. You know, I think the latest research came out that the average security operator is having to manage anywhere between seven and 10 separate products within their infrastructure. That's insane. Well, yeah, and Richard, so along that point, in some of the things I've trends I've seen recently are like we basically on in all different departments, right? Whether you're in a sysadmin, secops, devops, uh, security, whatever it is, we're managing like way too many tools, way too many solutions, way too much software, right? What a lot of us need is not the next greatest like AI machine learning, you know, platform that can do all those wonderful things. Like we need to come down to basics and along with you said, Richard, right? Like we need a, a great asset inventory. We need to apply patches to all of our stuff once we know what we have. And what we need is like this basic blocking and tackling type tools and techniques and all the other fancy stuff really isn't helping us if we're not doing those like basic techniques of, hey, whenever I deploy something, it's fully patched before it goes out and I know what I have. Like that's just such a basic thing that so many of us, I think, miss and we go to like build these other solutions on top of it and we're just we're not doing what we term air quotes like the basics, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes down to automation, in my opinion. The only way that we are going to continue to scale up is through automation of the basics. So automating your procedures and policies and your software deployment. Uh, this is something that we do a lot uh, here at Automox. It's the foundation of our product is automated cyber hygiene, automated system hardening. And you can apply this 
patched to this this group of machines over here, knowing that it's going to get out there. Or hey, you know what? This software needs to deploy out to all these machines, even if they're added new to the to the uh, infrastructure. Whatever it might be, you automate that. Now all of a sudden, not only have you have you scaled out your security group from not just the SOC or the you know, outsourced MSSP, but you've added your IT team internally as another layer of security. And then from there, the automation side helps to helps to remove a little bit of that workload, allowing your IT people, whoever it might be, to focus on the bigger deals at hand. Yeah. If you take care of the easy stuff and you can focus on the harder stuff, aren't you getting better value for your money on the employees? Well, you need to make the easy stuff easy. I think we yeah. make it way too hard, right? Like when Joff or Patrick comes along uh, for a pen test, if I've really automated and got a solid process for patching my stuff, that that's great like that provides protection don't get me wrong because we still use vulnerabilities however i think the real benefit is once that process is flowing along and as stuff is getting built and discovered it's automatically getting patched and we're dealing with a little bit of fallout that might happen and we're taking care of it it takes up less time and yep. less resources that gives us more time to focus on the things that likely Patrick and Joffs of the world are preying upon in our environments like Active Directory, the configuration, the projects to make sure we're rotating our service accounts, the projects to make sure I have a secrets vault on my apps, all the things that are more configuration-related, environment-related, rather than vulnerability and patching-related. I think there's a huge difference, and we don't get time to focus on that because we're still chasing our tails trying to make sure everything is vulnerability scanned and patched all the time. Yeah. Oh, so here's the question to you as let's tap into your pen testing days. If uh, if you were to approach an infrastructure, I mean, most likely you're coming in to do pen testing, red teaming, whatever it might be. The first thing you're going to look for is the unpatched vulnerabilities, because that's going to be the easiest way in. It's just like locking the doors of your building on your way out. You make sure your windows and your doors are locked. It's You're not making your, your, your building, your infrastructure 100% secure. You're just removing the easy way in. So you as a pen tester, red teamer, wouldn't it be harder for you to find that next vulnerability? Would it make it wouldn't it slow you down from getting in if just the basics were taken care of? Well, I, I think it depends on the situation. I think certainly critical, easy to exploit vulnerabilities. Joff and Patrick weigh in on this, right? Make our job is pretty easy as a red teamer. I think beyond that, we're abusing the configuration largely in Active Directory. But there are certainly some vulnerabilities that are built in there that if they're there, they certainly make things easy. Joff? Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I I got to tell you, it, I go searching for vulnerabilities is almost a last resort. I mean, so much of pen testing is just low-hanging low fruit misconfiguration kinds of things that, you know, vulnerabilities is like – I um. You know, I, I have to admit, I'm probably uh, biased by the types of tests I've been doing lately. But um, yeah, Joff, I think you're testing people that have largely figured out this problem that Richard and I have described yeah, as I, well, I, right? I, I, I and I do, I do agree. It's gotten better in a lot of organizations where you, you might not even bother. You just go for the other stuff rather than vulnerabilities. But there's still, yeah. I think, an overwhelming majority that haven't fixed the vulnerability and patching problem. Yeah, for for those that haven't fixed the vulnerabilities, certainly there's a, there's a plethora of stuff out there that's that's already written for you. There's so many frameworks that it's it's already available that you can just, you know, enumerate said vulnerability and just go for it. Um, 
I just don't have that particular uh, experience set in, but in al- my... But also, my- largely, Jeff, I think you're dealing with Af- Active Directory as well, correct? I do spend a lot of time doing more internal-related stuff uh, that, that is Active Directory, and a lot of that is more information-based. It's more reconnaissance mm-hmm. on the directory itself. It's more uh, you know, misconfiguration-based and... and uh, uh, you know things that system administrators do that are that are not right. Um, not you know, entirely, and- I do run into situations where, and in fact, I had one relatively recently where I ran out of it was well configured. I ran out of opportunity uh, to get myself any um, uh, you know additional leverage using just misconfiguration. So I went out to, um, frankly, I went out to uh, uh, exploit DB and and. Uh, Found found a zero day and modified a proof of concept and used it uh, right. to get local escalation. So yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's where it's going, right? Because I think you're going to find a way into the app. And for example, we talked on a previous show, right? You're going to get inside of a container now in in most modern applications, and then from there, like you're basically searching for vulnerabilities, right? I mean, the configuration is is certainly one avenue, but uh, you know. Brandon from Capsulate came on and said, like, look, once you're in a container, it's running on top of the kernel. Kernel exploits are valid. If you're not applying your patches, right, yeah. you're 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 screwed. And yeah. you know, Richard, I think that ties back into our conversation to be like, look, don't wait until you find that really high critical kernel vulnerability that's remotely exploitable. Now your local vulnerabilities are essentially remote because of your applications. Therefore it comes down to you gotta be patching everything in your environment, essentially. I think there's also something to be said about um, <clears throat> just processing everything that you're saying. I think there's something to be said about the idea that not only are you patching everything, but you're also allowing your EPPs to work smarter. You know, the data gathering, the everything else that comes out when it comes to a SOC and uh, they're you know doing threat hunting or whatever it might be. One of the first scans, one of the first checks they're going to do is like, hey, was it this vulnerability that let somebody in? Was it this exploit that allowed somebody to get through this known exploit? And the data continues to show that over 50% of that uh, hacks, according to uh, CISOs that are reporting back, they're saying it came through an unpatched vulnerability. And 35%, don't quote me on that one, we'll have to fact check that. 35% of them, I think, said uh, they knew about the vulnerability but hadn't patched it. And so when you sit there and you're seeing right. these organizations admitting that these hacks are happening, these breaches are occurring, uh, and the data loss is occurring because of an unpatched situation, there's no reason that we should be making it harder for people to get around in our network and making it easier for our EPPs to react and our SOCs. Yeah, it, it, it was actually uh, Apache Struts that... Um Oh, yeah. Synopsis Black Duck had done the recent research where they looked at every version of Apache Struts that was released, and they looked at every CVE and vulnerability that was released, and they started doing a diff about what version had known vulnerabilities that were uh, publicized um, and which ones you know maybe did not. So basically, in both directions, they found that for an Apache Struts version, there were it was actually vulnerable to things that had not been documented. They also found that for that same maybe or different Apache struts vulnerabilities that they said that they were not vulnerable when they really were. And 
you know, that comes down to like attackers are going to take advantage of those vulnerabilities, like known or not. Sure, there's configuration, right? But in that Apache Struts case, you, you got to be patching that stuff. And inside of an application like that, if you're moving into a modern DevOps environment, there's the longer you wait, the longer you're going to be in technical debt and the longer that's going to take to fix. If I can fix it earlier in my dev cycle, earlier in the process, that's less code that's being written that's dependent on that version, right? If switching from version one to version two means I got to change this function call, right? Like Python, for example, Jeff, right? Switching to seven uh, to three, like items versus iter items, right? Is a huge thing. The longer I leave that two seven code around, the more things are going to be tied to that two seven code. Exactly. If I upgrade earlier, the easier time I'm going to have making the migration. But you also bring up a good point. You also are aware that there is a potential criticality of uh, of threat there. You have a little bit of a larger target on your on your infrastructure because you haven't done that upgrade. So you're taking those steps to mitigate that threat. And that's something that you know, kind of goes back to inventory control, understanding your assets, understanding what you have to take uh take the steps on what you have to protect. That's one of the biggest things that we're not seeing happen. Uh, you're not, audit logs are not being looked at and they need to be looked at and they need to be monitored constantly. Not every single day, but you know, have that routine, check in on there, make sure that the inventory is there, make sure the access is happening where it needs to be happening. And that's gonna be just those little steps that can help you get to the point, okay, we're not to the version that we need to be at, but we will get there and we're taking the steps to mitigate anything in the uh, in the meantime, yeah, I th I think it's it's very much a blended approach when an attacker comes at your environment, and if they can find in a vulnerability to exploit to further their campaign, that's that's going to happen. And I think Active Directory is somewhat different, Joff, in that respect. Where I think there's more configuration vulnerabilities, like air quotes vulnerabilities, in that in that system. Then there are, you know, th that can get you further in certain circumstances than actually patching a vulnerability in the OS itself. That's not to say if you've got like the SMB vulnerability hanging around from WannaCry or or other ones that those aren't going to be detrimental to your security in certain circumstances. No. Well, there's legacy there's legacy technical debt uh, that that accrues in in things like Active Directory uh, that people have a really hard time getting rid of. Um, so you know that's uh, that's one thing, uh, and you you can't most organizations can't say oh throw up their hands and go okay that's it we're throwing it all out we're going greenfield starting all over again that's just not tenable it's not it's not right. feasible, um, right? And so th those are the kinds of things you see uh, in in those environments, and it's a really heavy lift to move away from some of that uh, technical debt, um, and I think that's you know. That that is something that I think a lot of organizations struggle with, even even way beyond the Active Directory space, right? They they struggle with that uh, in 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 many other deployments of of servers and services. I think that's where where cloud uh, cloud offerings are really helpful because uh, they give you the agility to move quickly. So I'm actually kind of wondering, um, uh, you know, how Automox and 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 some of the cloud operators and and what what the uh, what the relationship that 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 uh, you guys have with that? 
Uh, are you talking about like patching of the cloud services like Amazon and yeah. such? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So right now, Automox is in. Uh, Automox is focused on endpoint hardening. So we're not, um, at least at this point, looking at the hardening of uh, the cloud infrastructure. So AWS, uh, Azure, and that. Um, but it's in support of it. So we are a cloud native product. We believe in the cloud in terms of supporting of your own infrastructure. But our main focus is on the endpoints and services. Gotcha. Themselves. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, if you're controlling the operating system, Richard, you can yeah. put an Automax agent on it. You're responsible for yeah. patching at that point, right? I spin up an EC2 instance. I'm responsible for patching that stuff. Correct. I can put the Automax agent on it and, yeah. and, and patch it. Yeah, you can patch if you're hosting on uh, hosting like a, a virtual machine offsite in the, in the cloud. But you can apply the patch towards that, but not in towards that. You know, as we're seeing the Chase Bank, um, was it Chase? No, which which bank just got hacked? Bank Bank of was it Bank of America? Bank of America did. Yeah, Bank of America. Bank of America. Um, you know, as we're seeing, you know, they're getting in through just as database misconfiguration, something that they just didn't do it properly and they weren't storing the data properly. Now, that's not something we are focused on. But uh, if it is something that is a patchable on the endpoint side and OS and a, uh, that can be patched or third party applications, that is something that we are focused on. Because this, those are the basics. Those are the easy elements that we often forget, we being the industry itself. Well, because there's another yeah, element so to this as well. Uh, that I was just dealing with the other day is that, sorry to cut you off, Joff, uh, was working with a system where like half the vulnerabilities were patched, but maybe about a, somewhere half to a third weren't getting patched. The repos for patching weren't configured right. If we'd had something on there a little more sophisticated that took the configuration of the sources for patching out of the loop, it wouldn't have been so vulnerable. Fortunately, nothing bad happened, but it was kind of embarrassing for the sysadmin. It's like, dude, you didn't do the whole job. Um, do we run into that? Is that still, you know, that comes under misconfiguration, doesn't it? Something we need to help with? No. Sorry, say that again, Lee? I'm saying that comes under, uh, I mean, making sure that all our endpoints that are being configured for patching are, are properly configured to do the whole job. And if we can simplify that configuration, it'd be really nice. Well, and, and I think that's where it's going, right? Like at the yeah. end of the day, users are going to have to have some device that they use to access stuff, and that's going to have to be patched, right? Yeah. I maybe there's a future where that doesn't exist, but I, I, that's maybe a long ways off, right? So we're still going to have some responsibility for patching for the foreseeable future, no? Richard's like, yeah, that's what I'm banking on because I work for a company that applies patch, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 fingers crossed that we always have to patch something. Um, it, it comes down to it comes down to the configuration. It comes down to uh, accepting that things have changed. You know, let's go back to the analogy of the, the foundation. The foundation is established. Let's just let's just keep it as it is. You know, an organization is just as James was saying that we can't you know, take out Active Directory, but you can harden the elements of, around it. You can start hardening up the training. You can start hardening up the configurations, changing defaults, all that, and then also just automating the uh, the other components of it. And all that comes down to a, a properly trained, properly supported, and properly maintained team. I mean, this gets into the employment side. We're at, what, 3 million IT shortage, IT personnel shortage right now, and that's not going to change. I was talking to the uh, CTO over at Carbon Black, which uh, congrats to them, by the way. That's right. Um, yeah. Recent news: they were uh, acquired by who was it? Again? Um, 
VMware? VMware, yep. VMware, $2.1 billion. Good for Congrats them. to them. Uh, but I was talking with their CTO and he goes, if we took every single person that's in school right now to get into IT and put them into the workforce, we would still be 2.5 million people short. Mm, it's yeah. we're not going to catch up. So automation is the way that we can augment that. We can supplement that because it's not going to get easier. We're going to have new technologies come out in 10 years from now with the conversation that we're having right now is going to be completely different because the technologies are going to continue to evolve and the need for people to be able to manage and to support that all is going to have to evolve. But not, well. but not totally obsolete either, because if you think about it, I think we're always going to have decisions. And I think we, we kind of think of this in a, a smaller scale, sometimes not at a larger scale. Really, when we talk about automation and the things that cloud and all those things bring, we're faced with these decisions where we can leave we can give up some of the control, a lot of the control, and host it in the cloud. We can host it in containers in the cloud. We can host it in infrastructure in the cloud. We can do software as a service. We can do the most extreme form of it, right, where it's serverless, where it's just my code, right? And my my next prediction, prediction Richard, is what happens when it's not even my code? Like I just, I think about what I want to do and it writes my code for me. Like that's the next iteration of what we're talking about, right? We've extrapolated the operating system, the web server, the app server, all the libraries, everything. And I just write my code and I host it in the cloud. Like what's the next iteration of that? I don't know. It's like software without code. I don't know how that that even exists, right? But in each stage of this, we're faced with the decision, whether we know it or not, that we give up some control the more like hosting provider focused we are. So when I right. I can take my operating system, I can put it in the cloud, but then I can do, you know, Amazon Light Sale, I can do all these different technologies. And, and the more kind of down that path you go, the more control you give up. I think that there are some scenarios where we may look at it and say, yes, I want to give up this level of control and that's fine for this app. But I think there's always going to be apps where we're like, no, I really need to maintain this control. The extreme to that is I'm still going to host it on-premise. I'm going to host everything myself. I'm going to pick the hardware, the operating system, the software, and I'm going to write all the code myself all the way up into like I've just got this bit of Python that's going to run in, in Amazon AWS Lambda. Richard, you were, you, you were excited. You were waving your hands. You were, you were excited. You, 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 hit on, you hit on two elements. One, there's the personal element. Uh, I... I have worked in technology long enough to I should be able to trust a cloud, but I don't. I have a 32 terabyte file server in my basement that backs up everything. Sure. Yeah. And it, it, it is, uh, I'm backing up my cloud files to that file server just to ensure that no matter what happens, I always have access and I always have control. But on top of that, there's something else that you said recently. It doesn't matter how much control we give up to the cloud, we still need that device to access it. And that device has to have some core foundational element that can read the cloud element. It's never yeah. going to be codeless. There's always going to be something that has to access it and run that kind of right. Well, like Chrome, Chrome, Chrome OS is a good example of where yeah, we are Chrome today. Of like exactly. The slimmest, most ubiquitous kind of OS out there, right? Like, but it's still an OS. Correct. It's Linux. And everything's hosted up in the cloud, but you still, there are still elements. There are still vulnerabilities on those machines. There are still elements that can allow access in. And so that's where we kind of get back to. Even as we continue to automate the elements of our life and we continue to release control of these these technological innovations we also always have to hold on to our 
fundamentals of security because the fundamentals are oftentimes the ones that are skipped over the oftentimes the ones that are, you know, it's why phishing still works. It's why uh, compromised websites still work. Compromise, uh, you know, password guessing still works because we haven't enforced, we haven't encouraged, we haven't followed those fundamentals. I've got a question, um, and and maybe I missed this earlier uh, in in your discussion, but, you know, traditionally um, patching cycles with most operating systems, just taking the OS layer for a minute, generally been pretty good, you know, right? They've got their act together. Microsoft's kind of leading the pack, and uh, all all the other Linuxes and everything have got their um, repository solutions that update things and patch them. application layer uh, and, and, and dockerization, application virtualization layer, whole different story. So how's your solution extending up, you know, above the OS layer? Uh, where, How are you playing with, with all of these various a- applications uh, that are riding on these operating systems uh, in the solution that you have? Are you talking more to like the third party or talking to elements like within dockers or um, like how they're being hosted? Well, go back to go back to endpoints. Um, you know, I'm talking about your 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 Adobe's and your um, uh, application X. You know, pick one. Well, so we have third party we have third party software management. So you're able to go in there and see, hey, here's the inventory of your software that you have on your endpoint. Here's the patches that need to be released for it. Let's Adobe's a very good one. Uh, recently, we ran into an element where somebody was running Adobe Flash Seven, uh, and God. that's com- <laughs> whew, we won't even go into how vulnerable that makes that organization but adobe flash 7 is you know needs to be updated but it can't just be updated you actually have to rip and replace it so what we're doing is we're writing what we call a workload it's just a pearl script that um i mean powershell script this is go out rip and replace so if it is found it is ripped out and then replaced and then from there the inventory is updated within the control and that's how we are um, we're not just allowing people just to patch the products that they have but we're also helping to harden up their system. So we're going to bring that Adobe Flash up to the latest, not as vulnerable version uh, that exists. But also, Richard, in that scenario, what I found really interesting when I worked in vulnerability management was you could find the vulnerability, patch the vulnerability, and you'd still then go recheck for that, and it would still be vulnerable. And I'd scratch my head and be talking with you know, customers and the internal teams and like, what is going on? And they're like, well, there was multiple versions of that software installed. The patching process only patched one of those versions. Vulnerability scanner was smart enough to identify that, yeah, that version's patched, but that one isn't, right? In the scenario you just described, and knowing what I know about the Automox project, uh, product, you could script that to say, Basically, like go wipe out all versions of it, regardless of where it lives, and replace it with the most recent version, and basically take that scenario off the table. We actually had a customer that did that recently. He was uh, they hired on a new MSSP to help augment the security of their organization. They came in with their own suite, and they had to rip and replace uh, a couple software elements. And doing each piece uh, or each machine was taking an hour and fifteen minutes to do manually. Uh, and he was like, wait a second, I can script all of this. So he writes up the script. He does a test on, a, on his test VM. It works. So he deploys it out to the whole environment. Uh, something sub 300 endpoints, just right under 300 endpoints. took two hours. He was able to rip, replace, and 
two hours, something that would have taken mm-hmm. two to two and a half weeks for a full-time employee to do. There's awesome. that cost savings on there, but that kind of goes back to the CIS controls, understanding your inventory, understanding what's installed in the machine. If you go into your environment and you see, hey, there's multiple versions of Adobe, there's multiple versions of Chrome, there's multiple versions of Flash, get the ones out of there that are vulnerable because you need to have one. You need to have one secure version. You need to make sure that the other softwares are up to date working with it and fix whatever needs to be fixed. But you can script that out. You don't always have to replace something. Sometimes you're just like, you know what? We are no longer a Chrome shop. Everybody's already using uh, Edge or whatever they're calling it, Internet Explorer. Let's just rip Chrome out because of this reason. You can go in, write that script. Oh, wait. I get a good reason. Because Chrome takes up all my CPU and in memory oh, cycles on my yeah, machine. Yeah, that's an excellent reason. <laughs> yep. all, of it, all of it. That's an excellent reason. I, I'm, I'm for one, I'm a Firefox user because of that. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I get that totally. Yeah. totally. It's just something that you're able to do. And if you can script it, you can deploy it. And that's what we like to ask our customers. You know, we've talked about this. What would you work with? Because that's ultimately what it comes down to is you are able to do this. Now, Something uh, one of one of the uh, guests brought up something about older systems. Uh, let's talk about uh, Bluekeep for a second. Bluekeep is still prominent in the news. Bluekeep is something that you know, of course, Microsoft came out with the patch. They deployed it out, or at least a lot of people to download manually and deploy it out. Uh, for some of our customers, we wrote a worklet to deploy out the patch so that they could patch all their XP machines, but there are certain customers that couldn't do it. So if you know the vulnerability and you know how to change it, so you can script it. So in the case of the RDP vulnerability, we wrote a script to change the default settings on it Mm -hmm. and allowed those customers to at least stop a little bit of that vulnerability, get a little bit of that patch without changing uh, infrastructure that couldn't be changed. Well, and I think we should uh, back up for our listeners not once you get the Automox agent on your systems, not only can you apply patches to the OS and third-party software, but you can essentially, for whatever operating system, Linux, Mac OS, or Windows, you can write a, write scripts, right? That test for a condition, and then if that condition's true, if I get this right, Richard, correct me, or if I get it wrong, correct me. Uh, if it's true, then execute this script. So essentially, you can use it to do whatever you want on your system. Yeah, it's almost right? like an if this, then that kind of script-based uh, agent that you can build out. So PowerShell and uh, and bash scripting is something that you can easily deploy out and automate. So say you have a password policy that you want uh, installed on every single machine locally. You can just... Every machine that gets added into this group, the password policy is pushed out via PowerShell script or bash script, and it's just automatically done uh, through our process. And it, it really does come down to this two megabit agent sitting on the endpoint is giving IT users the control that they need to harden their systems, to establish s- solid cyber hygiene. Mm. So I had two questions. Go ahead, Dave. Right. Um, so one is, you know, we talked about, uh, you talked about having them make a bunch of changes to systems, you know, like getting down to say one installed version of Java or Flash and and making it current. Um, Is there still an issue with, uh, I don't know if it's maturity or capability. In other words, no, we can't change it. Really has to go by the wayside. We have to be willing to move things forward. Is that a a barrier that still has to be overcome or have folks in general got that figured out, realize we need to keep moving forward? 
there's still a fear of the future, in my opinion. Um, I came from an AI uh, ML company that was sold to a large company that makes phones, if you can figure out who that is. Um, and there's still fear when I was out there talking about that product. When I was out there you know, representing them, there was still fear of what it was. Uh, we, we, I like this house analogy. Uh, Paul, I'm going to steal this in the future. Yeah, please do. If, please do. If you want, I'll, I'll credit you. Mostly, um, <laughs> you, you, you know, you're driving through a neighborhood. There's a lot of nice houses. They're well-maintained. They're taken care of, but you pull up on that one house. that's not maintained. And somebody just goes, I just like how it is. I, I don't want to change it. I don't want any, I don't want new grass. I don't want new plants. This is, this is how it is. I don't care that the paint's peeling. There's always going to be that mindset in every element of our lives. And especially in the IT world, uh, some of the pushback that we get from, um, IT people is if we automate this, I'm out of a job and it's fear. It's fear yeah. that change is going to make them obsolete. And I, I challenge that and say, wouldn't it allow you to focus on bigger and better things? You know, go take a science class, go take uh, ICAA uh, classes, you know, get out there and really dive into what can help you grow as an employee. Well, Don't and Richard, I really think that, that that path is understanding what's available in the cloud and automation and containers and that whole, I mean, Amazon alone, leave Google cloud and Azure out of it for a moment. Amazon alone has so many new services and products that could really help the IT infrastructure move in a different direction. The one thing I think we lack today is education about all of these. Yeah. So now add in the other you know, uh, platforms, if you're automating yourself out of a job, that gives you time to go learn about and then build the next iteration of yeah. your applications and your infrastructure, right? That okay. when you tie that back, everything that I've read, researched, and talked with people, when you tie that back, enables the business to operate more efficiently, and if you do it right, more securely than ever before right so you're yep. really enabling the business by automating those processes that's i think how we have to spin it to folks by automating those processes you can go learn stuff that's basically going to make your company better that's going to make yep. it more efficient and and essentially more secure again if you do it right i mean it's yep. a double-edged yep. sword but yeah so there's one other pushback that i've run into and that is when uh when we're sitting here and we're cyber and we want to add a tool like an Automox, an agent on a system that's going to gonna help us with the security, we get the, uh, oh, we've got this many agents, this much of the CPU is just consumed by agents and therefore no, whereas when IT wants to put something on, that conversation doesn't happen. Well, if uh, you remove Chrome from all the systems, Lee, yeah. you've got so many <laughs> well, more could, CPU cycles, it's great. It's fine. Well, I, you know, and... I, that would make huge resources available just just getting rid of that one product. But I I I was just wondering is that something that's narrow to my scope or is people no still it's valid pushing no back it, on no. agent it's Very a valid, valid point yep yeah, yeah how so do you deal, how do you deal with that Richard when because I mean I've dealt with that as a product marketing manager in the past right it, agents are like you say the word agent and man oh the reaction is just. It's fear. Fish, it's it's, like, it's, it's yeah. disgust. Like, oh my god, I'm going to have another icon on my computer. I can't believe this. How it's dare crazy. you? How dare you make my computer worse? It's true, um, though. It is. Uh, 
I don't like the word agent, at least in the case of us. Uh, I lost this battle, but I like to call it a sensor because all it is is gathering data and sending it out um, up to our the cloud management console, and that's all it's doing. Uh, and then it's receiving the command to download the patch. That's it. It's a two megabit agent, agent that sits on the endpoint, but the user will never know. There's no desktop icon. There's no uh, start button. There's nothing for them to see. It's hidden. So it's more of a sensor, like an EDR sensor in terms well, of... Well, now, Richard, hold on. I think, just interjecting quickly, I think that the AV industry early on really kind of spoiled it for everyone with oh. an agent because yeah, they put they software on endpoints that would run a scan suck in the middle the of the day, line. suck up yeah. all the resources, let the user interact with it, and, and do all kinds of things that just made a horrible experience. I think that the... I won't call it agent, right? The software that you deploy to run on endpoints, for example, today is so much better. It's We've learned yeah. so much. It doesn't get in the user's way, and it doesn't impact the system as a whole in any capacity. We uh, we hope we've learned something. Uh, right, there's plenty right. of examples of organizations that haven't learned enough. Um, but, it, I mean, we have all these products on our on our machine, but if you have a small product that's not using a lot of resources, it's not using a lot of memory, that does one scan, has an understanding, and then just does a perpetual scan as things come down and things change, then all of a sudden you're not using a lot of resources in the middle of the day. You're not impacting the workability of the user. You're What you're doing is you're just keeping that data up to date. It's, an, it's a constant audit almost that allows the IT manager to take control of the environment no matter where the endpoints are. And, there's the other big thing is that as we become more mobile, you know, I work remote two days a week. Uh, I don't VPN into the office because I don't need to. My right. IT team can directly see the software that's on my endpoint and make any changes that they need to without me ever having to call home. Now, all of a sudden, that practice of VPNing in, you can remove the VPN. You can remove some of that software that you had to do with Global Connect and all that that was using resources and just have this one simple product. And that's where we take it down to. It's like, let's do, let's do uh, consolidation of senior services down to one simple, one simple software and one simple agent that gets installed there. Yeah, you're right. The AV industry really screwed it for a lot of us. Uh, but in the end, we're already selling a lot of products on our machines, you know, 10, 10 products in general uh, is the average. So why not one more or remove Chrome and just save the world? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, wow, that's a great t-shirt. I want remove Chrome and save the world. That's your t-shirt, right? That my, um, vulnerability Wednesday t-shirt had arrived in time for the show, but it didn't. <laughs> that's awesome. That's perfect. Well, uh, the other the other piece you hinted on there though is also we've also is, instead of scanning full time all the time, we're taking we've added the maturity of scheduling and being able to say, look, these things can only be touched between two and three in the morning and these things are game 24 7 and building some confidence that you're not going to go scan joff's desktop right in the middle of his 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 pen test that sort of maturity layer also plays into it i'm assuming orchestration and timing and stuff is a is a key component in your in your uh, product well it's also it's not just the scanning component but it's also the deployment yeah. time you know if you're in the right. middle of a webinar and all of a sudden, the little box pops up and says, hey, we're going to install an update right now. Just going to go, oh, crap. And it just does it. In some cases, the product forces it through. So you work right. with your your local IT, your local user's schedule. We built this product around the idea that you're, you have a mobile workforce. 
so I could take this machine, I could go to Europe. And if the IT administrator here in Colorado says, hey, we're going to deploy out this patch at 5 p.m., it's not going to be 5 p.m. Colorado time. It's going to be 5 p.m. of wherever I am. It's the local machine time that defines it. So deploy it outside the work element. You send a notification. Hey, would you like to deploy this patch now or later? You can select. You can even give the user control to say, I'm going to wait one hour. You can give them limits. You, know, you can delay it three times, whatever it might be, until it's forced through. And that gives the IT or the user a little bit of control over their endpoint, but the IT administrator confidence that it's happening. You know, hey, they've gone through their three chances. It's being deployed out. We're confident that it's been deployed within the last 24 hours. And I, I love that, Richard, for a lot of reasons. One is we have that exact scenario. And it's actually one reason why we went to Automox because we do produce a webinar. And when we're doing a webinar, like for that hour, everything stops. Like, no, like you're not deploying an update during our webinar, right? And it was the... One of the things was not just the multi-platform support, not just the capabilities to apply patches, but it was that management, that window where we could say for the you know dozen or so systems that run the shows, like we know when downtime can happen and we know when it can't happen. Very definitively, we know that, right? And so we have a very structured when we deploy patches to our infrastructure, when we, when I and, and our, our dev team deploy new updates to our website, new updates to our publishing software, we know when the critical times are, right? So any software that we adopt as Security Weekly has to be able to uh, know that from us. We have to define that for the software. So like Thursday evenings is not a time to deploy new software. When we're doing a webcast, not a time to deploy new software. Other times, totally fine, right? And we know the gaps in our publishing schedule to say, if you do it on a Wednesday night, that's cool because the next show is not happening till 6 p.m. on Thursday. That gives us all day Thursday to deal with whatever fallout might happen, and that's our biggest window. And that's just a shining example of enterprises today, right? Like you know yeah. what the schedule is based on what you're doing as a business, essentially. Yeah. So, Absolutely. So I mean, two o'clock on Thursday is good for installing Chrome. No, yeah, you uninstall <laughs> Chrome. It's always uninstall Chrome, right? Always. But Sorry, I Richard. do have to say, on the Chrome front, it's how I can justify faster processes for everyone, myself included. Because I'm go, I got to run Chrome. That means I need a 16 core i9, not an eight core. Because <laughs> I got to run Chrome. Chrome's how That's I heat my core, office, right? It's eight cores right there, right. at least. You know, hey, more. gentlemen, I think we just saw global warming. We did. Just delete Chrome. Chrome. Delete Chrome, and we're good. Delete Chrome. Wow, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant, I tell you. <laughs> there goes All Google security sponsor. Saving the planet. There goes one. Yeah. Just blame yeah, me. It's okay. It, it's really funny. While we're having that conversation, I'm actually looking at my activity monitor on my uh, desktop. And oh, yeah. Fucking Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> Chrome. <laughs> Cool, but that's damn. another T-shirt. Chrome. Yeah. Damn it. Why does Chrome need? Uh, well, now get... in in Ed, Microsoft Edge, and we all know if you worked in security and were involved with vulnerabilities, and you had to deal with Internet Explorer, like you just want to cry. I mean, just even like thinking about Internet Explorer six, like I just want to cry. Like it was so awful in terms of security. The latest version of Edge uses uh, Chromium, Chromium, did I say that? Chromium, Chromium. as the framework underneath. Right. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what did Microsoft do? Like, did, it, it, is it, like, 
Mozilla's implementation, or, or sorry, Google's implementation of Chrome that causes all the performance issues, is it add-ons that, that make it even worse? Or is it the Chromium framework itself, and are we going to see the same performance like atrocities that we see with Chrome that we're going to see that we're going to see the same ones with Microsoft Edge because they just had a bug bounty announcement. Um, you know they're working with Google to if you find something that's related to Chromium, there's stuff in the bug bounty program about that, right? Because they're basically building it on that framework. So like I, I wonder is performance going to be any better on on the new version of Edge? I don't know. Probably. If not. only there were technical people that you could turn to and ask. I'm sure there's, uh, and we have a good relationship with Microsoft. They're awesome, by the way. As their employees are awesome. The company, yeah. their PR, every, they're just great to deal with. There are people, you're right, Richard, that can answer that question. Like, how did you, because I'm sure there was a group of people at Microsoft that were like, look, this is the next version of Edge. And they were modeling the performance and going, oh, crap. Like, how do we make this better, right? Like, Microsoft's one of the largest software companies in the world. There's a whole team of people that were dedicated to that, for sure, right? You bring up a really good point. It's uh, over at the Microsoft shop, I'm sure when they were developing this, they're like, we already are, you know, we're already kind of at a behind on this kind of stuff. You know, everyone already makes fun right. of us. Yep. So what do we do to get ahead of this? They are not going to just repeat what Chrome is doing, hopefully, because if they do, no one's going to turn to Chrome and be like, oh, look, Chrome's taking up all your memory too, all your resources too. They're going to just go, oh, look, Microsoft still can't build a browser. And that's, you know, they had to have done something different. I'd be very interested in seeing what they did. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. One of the killers on Chrome. Valve. Yeah. The only reason I'm still running Chrome on this particular machine is I have one service I use that won't work in Safari and won't work in Firefox. Yeah, Damn that's thing true. Keeps working in Chrome. That didn't used to be the case. Earlier versions, well, upgrades happen. So, but other than that, I I was hardly before that happened. I was never using Chrome. I just had it as an emergency browser in case something else didn't work. Oh well, I. I'm hoping they can make Edge a better product. Uh, my biggest complaint with Edge has been it's incompatible with too much stuff. It doesn't didn't work right in Edge, so I revert to IE. And you know, and, the, and that's the amazing thing, and that ties lead directly into the patching issue that we're talking about, right? Is and I don't necessarily blame the software developer. In fact, I have so much more empathy for software developers having done it basically full-time for the past two months right it's like i don't know whose fault it is or how we came to this thing where you can write an application and it works in one browser not the other right works in one iteration of the os and not the other whose fault is that at the end of the day it doesn't matter because it complicates patching right if i patch the browser or patch the os that gets a new browser now my app is broken. Richard, as you well know, like that slows down people's patch deployments significantly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, blaming and the ownership game doesn't help us any further, right? Like I, I think we need to focus on the solution. How do we adopt frameworks and methodologies that allow us to write software that doesn't get broken by an OS or a browser update, right? Is I mean, the real ultimately, thing. things do get broken. Um, you have sometimes have to do a rollback of a patch. You know, mm -hmm. it controls. You know, you, you did your test. You did your due diligence as an IT administrator. You went in. You did your due diligence. You deployed it out, and all of a sudden, something happened that you weren't prepared for. I need to pull it back. You 
we've you can do a mass rollback of a patch if you need to in any case and take that back and allow your your infrastructure your your machines to get back up and running while you try to figure that out but the industry as a whole i think in some cases when you see a little bit better testing there's a lot of fear from when patches were tested as much um, and that fear led to this element where we surveyed our our recent webinar uh uh, attendees, how long they're waiting, like what is their real time uh, patch management? And some people are saying over 30 days, 30 days from the date that the, the patch is released to the point that they are, that they are deploying it out because they're concerned about what else. And if you look on you know, Reddit, Spiceworks, Twitter, mm-hmm. all those communities, people are saying, I'm just going to wait for the community to tell me if this is good or not. We shouldn't be just at that element. Yes, there should be a community conversation. I think that's pushing the developers to kind of do a little bit of better QC on that. I side. know, but it's hard. Like, even if I write the code, right? And then I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to bed, wake up the next morning. I'm going to put myself in the user's shoes. I'm going to test my software, right? I'm going to write scripts as I go that test my software. Confident, I'm going to push the release out. You're, you haven't been doing software development. You haven't pushed that out. And a user just, in the data they're working with, coupled with the user, finds this scenario where you're like, I don't even know how I would have found that before. Yeah. Like, now I know. But, like, before that happened and the user came up with this weird scenario, and Mark is awesome at this, coming up with the scenario going, I'm like, oh, I, like, I, I don't even know how I would have thought of that on my own. But, like, dude, you broke it. And I'm like... You legit broke out. I go fix my code, and that and that's cool. But like those scenarios, and now you extrapolate that out into millions. And I have eight thousand lines of code, millions and millions of lines of code, right? And then you look at it, Microsoft that has a million or plus customers that are testing their code. Like someone's going to find a scenario where that breaks for them. Yeah, and it's it's right now. It's not going to be perfect, and I wish it was. Right. Um, I, I have an example of just, we were talking plugins. I have a plugin installed in Firefox that breaks web pages all the time. Um, I think I find a bug, say like uh, on a discourse community. I was like, oh, I found a bug and I submitted it. And they're like, uh, what, what's going on? Like, we've never seen this before. And I was like, oh, it's this, this, and this, and this. And we go through the test and I realize it's this one plugin that's yep. killing a certain element in there. It's like, this is something discourse had not seen before. And so that's, you know, that's exactly what you're saying, but on the larger scale. So there's, it's not perfect. Um, and it's not the fault of the, of the software developers themselves. They are being notified of the patches. They, you know, the ones that have in the bug bounty programs are participating in bug bounty programs. That's great. They're opening it up. They're welcoming those vulnerabilities to come in. They're supporting the community, you know, the people who are able to apply that from a user's perspective and the, the people who are able to focus in and say, here's how I'm going to break it in this certain element or this script that's going to do this. I think that's going to help continue to drive it forward. Oh boy. Just writing software is hard. It is not. I don't easy. envy you. Right. Right. Joe. I mean, no. you've both, you know, been on the, the pen tester side and breaking stuff and writing software, writing software is way harder in my opinion, dude, like making shit work is way harder than trying to break yeah. into it. No, that, that, there's a really big, big difference between proof of concept and production quality ready. Yes. Software. Yes. Huge difference. Huge, huge. Cause I'll do that a lot of times. Like, I'm like, this is sort of working the way I want. And then 
like I got to give it to Jack or one of our other developers. Like now, like make this like production ready, right? Like I can do the, I can get the requirements and like this is this is what what we want, right? But then there's like those extra steps that are making it production ready. That's the hard part, right? And and regression testing, I think is really I, largely. I think what we're talking about when it comes to patches, especially, is regression testing. And Absolutely. doing a full regression test is not easy. It's no. just it's just not for all the reasons we talk. User has a different plugin installed in their browser. How do I account for that in my my you know my testing? I mean, it's not necessarily. It could be a regression testing, right? I modified this other functionality. And then this other functionality doesn't work because the user has a plugin installed that was impacted. Like those scenarios are hard. Well, plus, and I think the expectations are just so high these days too. They it's are. Like, why? Why won't it work with my toaster? I got twenty-eight plugins. What's the problem with that? You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom either. I mean, there's software that works really well that I think plays into those expectations, Joff. Right? Like, not all software is created equal. And some software works really great, and that forms expectations when it works great like that. So, when users adopt other software, and it's not it's not perfect, it's not as good. Expectations are pretty high because yeah. we do have some quality software out there today, versus exactly what we right. had maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? So I think that's a, that's a message to everybody, right? I mean, quality software to everybody else, raise the game. That's right, it. Step go. up the game. No. Write good software. That's yep. not easy. Absolutely. It's not easy. Absolutely. It's, it, it should be easy. No, it's really not. Uh, and I don't envy those that have to do it. Uh, but I think you bring up some really good points of the, of the user expectation. You know, we, we buy a brand new phone and we turn it on and it works. We yes. open up a brand new laptop and we turn it on and it works. I remember getting my first 386 machine and having to configure the operating system. I don't even remember what it was running. I remember installing NT server on machines and just having to go through configuration after configuration. Hard oh, coding from all. floppies, right? What well, oh, was, okay. was N, wait now was Windows NT or was it Windows three five one for work groups or both that was on floppies you had to install? Both, both, both. right? You could uh, install NT it from server floppies. was on floppies. floppies. I remember this was uh, two thousand three in the military. We and were and still it, installing it was a fucking stack of floppies, stack too, of floppies, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nuts <laughs> but to richard's point right you you can go to best buy right now and you can buy a chromebook and fire it up and it works right yeah. big difference big difference so the, the world has changed the consumer i think the consumer also needs to be patient yeah uh, because as technology has gotten more complicated as technology has gotten more advanced and these elements these little you know connections and plugins and everything that we are all relying on I mean, I love the idea that my phone is more powerful than all the Apollo computers that sent us to the moon combined. Sure. That's incredible to know. And I use it to look up memes and make calls <laughs> and text people. That, that, that's what I use my phone for, Richard. <laughs> exactly Absolutely. that. That's and in that for. order, too. Like, exactly. I got to get memes. I got to get text messages and maybe some phone calls. But exactly. that's the order of operations. <laughs> but the technology has gotten more advanced. And we, as a consumer, when something doesn't work, yes. I'm frustrated. And I'm so mad. Got to get it's my like, memes. Exactly. You're like, oh, my God, Reddit's not loading. What will I do with my time? But we go down to the elements of if something doesn't work, you know, you deploy out a patch and something's not working. Oftentimes, the user just goes to the IT administrator like, you broke it. I can't believe you. And the IT administrator's getting yelled at all the time. So they go to the manufacturer like, I can't believe you guys are idiots. You guys deployed out a bad patch. And then we post up all these bad reviews. Yeah. 
that's not helping. But what I it's, love, Richard, you said, and Joff was laughing too, because you said like users yeah. just need to have more patience. And damn it, anyone that uses my software, I'm like, look, I'm pushing. I say me. this every time. I'm pushing new release. I'm like, Mark, I'm like you gotta, you gotta be patient, dude. Like it's my software. Like I, I write crappy code. Like it, it, be patient. Like there's gonna be like shit's gonna go bad. Like I just kind of. I set the expectations low with my software, <laughs> rightfully so. Right, Joff? You were laughing hysterically when Richard said I, I, it. It's, I was because, it's you know, so it's, true. It, it is just so true. I mean, it's it's nice to say, well, you, you all need to have a little bit more patience, but the fact of the matter is the industry with its evolution is, has set that expectation level higher and higher and higher. People are just mm -hmm. seeing their machines like toasters now. If it doesn't work, then yeah. what? wrong with people you know they, they just didn't do the right thing and and yeah people don't have that patience anymore i have a question for everybody do you think that the element of the disposable uh device has also played the impact into our lack of patience towards things working yeah i agree richard because like back sure. in the day technology and computers especially were expensive right thousands of dollars for me that 3d6 that 4d6 we laughed today. That was like thousands of dollars back in the day. And like, if that shit didn't work, like you were on the phone with tech support. Yep, you made it It work. was back then, dude. It was before much of the internet, right? You were maybe on BBSs. And uh, we talked about this uh, in an in interview with Black Hat too. Like you went to like local computer meetups and talked to your friends and be like, I'm having this problem getting this game to load on DOS. Like, what do I need to do? Right. And I think two things make people spoiled today. One, how cheap stuff is. If one thing doesn't work, like whatever. If it's old, I just go buy a new one. Like a Raspberry Pi is like, what, $35 or whatever. Like I'll just go buy a new one, right? Or go buy some different piece of technology to solve my problem. Number two, if it doesn't work, I'm going to go on the internet and bank on that there's like hundreds, thousands of people that maybe ran into this same problem and have posted like, here's how you fix it. And, yeah. and that shit didn't exist 15 or maybe 20 plus years ago, right? So troubleshooting has also changed. I mean, nowadays, back then, well, let's go back to the 486, 386 machines, back when we were building our own towers. Yeah. I was 14 years old, building my own computer. And, you know, I had to learn through those computer meetups. My dad would drive me down to the computer meetup. Yes. And here I am in a room full of random people just kind of going, I don't know what I did wrong. And it turns out, you know, it's a little plug on the BIOS or, yeah, Something. yeah. Someone has yeah, done it before. Element. But if I want to, let's take it back to the phone. If I want to diagnose this, it's all programming. It's all code. Yeah. And I get frustrated with that because that's not my element. That's not. That's not something I'm comfortable with. Having to go in and change settings and you know reconfigure this and do this. That's. I like the physicality. You know. You know what. You know what's cool, Richard, is that um, my son, my oldest son's eleven, right? And he's one of his summer reading was a biography of Steve Jobs. And they talked about how Stephen Waz created the company back in the day and they went to local computer meetups to showcase their technology. That was like one of the first, like basically one of the first working personal computers. And the way they got other people interested in shared ideas was going to those local computer meetups. Yeah. It wasn't like I did, a, you know, a blog post online or like whatever. Like I had to go meet with people. That was the only way. To showcase my, it was the only way to ask someone a question was to go meet with them.
Yeah, I, st- I stand by that that is still the personal element of marketing. Um, and that's that's my forte is I have it, I love technology, but the personal element of education, that's why the SANS classes are so popular, um, especially in a, in a sea of conferences that are a little watered down and not as, as educational as they could be. Um, you know, you have these educational courses where you can go out with peers and start asking these questions and Agree. Yes. with vendors and actually ask them the difficult questions. I challenge that. We we go to meetups as much as we can and we love the questions that we receive in person because it's challenging us to not only think on our toes, but to to understand what they want, what the cus the consumer is going to want. And so mm-hmm. being the company size that we are, we're able to be agile, take that into account. And on top of that, there's a little bit of the community aspect where you are beta testing a, a, a community for all right now where people can come and talk about cyber hygiene, talk about um, Automox patching, not even if they're users, they can just come join that conversation to foster this element of connectivity and support that allows us all to get to the, the end game of comfortable and secure with our devices. Mm-hmm. Richard, we just have uh, five questions for you. Okay. We do this game called Five Questions with Security Weekly. We, on purpose, did not Sweet. prep you for this. <laughs> Sweet. And I can't wait. Now, now, to ease your fears, Richard, there are no right or wrong answers. Well, that's not completely uh, There's true. only five questions, and one of them is multiple choice, and there's only two possible answers. And even if your answer is outside of those, it's still technically never correct, or incorrect or correct. Okay. But you're probably going to be wrong in anyway. Yeah. We don't judge. <laughs> I mean, Joff well, might, but like with the rest of us, we oh, don't. What do you mean, Joff might? I won't ah. judge. I'm no, no, we don't judge. We don't judge. Can I ask a question, Joff? What are you wearing a Black Hills security? Yes. Or, Joff works for I, Black Hills security. Yes. I, I am. That's right. Yeah. That's right. right. Uh, I love, I love that podcast. I'm going to just say that. And I love the, uh, uh, I love the, uh, the book behind you, Paul. Um, Active uh, countermeasures, yeah. Active Offensive security. Uh, yeah. Offensive countermeasures, yeah. Marcus. Oh, the tribe of hackers. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tribe, and tribe of hackers, yes. Tribe of hackers. Uh, so if you, love, if you love that so much, you should come out to Wild West Hacking Fest because that's a Black Hills conference, and we have a really, really good time. It's not that and far from Colorado, right? Like It is not that far, right? We're up in go. South Dakota. Um, it's, it's a long way for me, but... Uh, but but not not really that bad. I actually don't. But you know, you, it's not, it's funny, Richard. I just a little, before we together. get it, before we get into five questions, because we have the liberty of time, because we're we're doing awesome on this. Our first segment was short, and we got it pre-recorded. So, Richard, you benefit from having more more time with, and we benefit from having more time with you. So it's awesome. But John Strand and I, I don't remember how we met. I, we met somewhere at a Sands conference. He was in like a suit. He was teaching a management class or something. I don't know. We just kind of hit it off. in a suit? Wow, he was that's... in a suit. And I was like, dude, why are you wearing? And we just hit it off. And I, I don't know how we got talking. He was like, dude, you should come present at a SANS conference. So like I flew out to New Orleans and John recommended me. And I'm like, well, John's like a certified SANS instructor. So like I better not screw up, right? And all my friends at SANS, uh, Mike Poor and Josh Wright, they hazed me in the presentation and of course, it, they right, and and <laughs> and and I think I did all right because they asked me back and whatever. And John and I got friendly. And John was like, went to this like podcast thing, and all their people asking me in their podcast. I'm like, dude, you got to do our podcast. Like, I'm not gonna let you go do it. Like, you got to do ours. Like, you here is your home. And John did. 
we merged companies, we did a lot of consulting together, uh, we created a startup together, and now, you know, John and I have just been kind of, you know, side by side ever since. Basically, John hosts Enterprise Security Weekly with us. So we have a very rich history. John does a great conference uh, in South Dakota every year. So we've got a yeah, very October, close relationship October, with Black Hills. Uh, October 22nd uh, is, the, is the date. Uh, starts Tuesday through Friday. And yes, I do work for Black Hills. And yes, I have spent a lot of time with Paul lately. Probably more than John has. But Probably, anyway. yes. I'm like, Joff, we need to talk about Python. John one yeah. day goes, I'm going to hire this guy, Joff Fire. I'm like, dude, never heard of him. John's like, he's awesome. I'm like, cool. Can he be in the show? John's like, absolutely. And Joff has been a friend and a true asset ever since then. So you, you, hit on a, you hit on a relationship that is very, very near and dear to our hearts, Richard. So, yeah. Great. Good. So uh, you know, and, and now, and, now, Richard, we want to learn. Yeah, we want to learn about you. So here are five questions for you, my friend. The first of which is three words to describe yourself. Loud, obnoxious, and personable. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? thought about this uh probably an axe if you're gonna go out go out strong if you wrote a book about yourself what would the title be <sighs> loud obnoxious and personable <laughs> in wow. the popular i like that it's efficient in the popular game of ask grabby grabby do you prefer to go first or second second choose two celebrities to be your parents alive otherwise Oh, Johnny. Nice. What, what, what was that? Uh, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, uh, fictional, or otherwise. Keanu Reeves. Um, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you meet, how do you match that? Uh, <sighs> and and if, if anyone messed with your dog growing up. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dude, Keanu Reeves and Cindy Crawford. Oh, oh dude, beautiful Cindy Crawford choices. was like when I was growing up. She was like the teenage boys, but like pff, everyone knew Cindy Crawford. What right? he's saying is, she was his, you know, laundry sock material. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you. I'm getting a really strange look over here from uh from my. <laughs> Like what are you guys talking about? Totally fine. Tell it. Tell it. Just for the record, it was not Richard. Richard answered the questions genuinely and did a great job. Richard, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. I look forward to coming back. Absolutely, anytime, Richard. Uh, With that, we'll take a short break. We're going to come back with two pre-recorded interviews. Uh, One is with Recorded Future, and the other is with Versec. So stay tuned. Polis is introducing a new prescription for security, and it's free. Global IT asset discovery and inventory. Activate it today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys so you can achieve 100% near real-time visibility across your hybrid environments. 
Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash BHIS to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. The biggest problem in security that remains unsolved is unprotected attack paths that allow threats to compromise vulnerable targets in the cloud and data center. But traditional micro-segmentation is too complex and time-consuming. There's a better approach. Edgewise Zero Trust Auto-Segmentation. Edgewise is impossibly simple micro-segmentation, delivering results immediately with a security outcome that's provable and management that's zero touch. Driven by machine learning, Edgewise automatically builds policies that protect any application in any cloud without any changes to your network. They provide measurable improvement by quantifying attack path risk reduction and verifying software identity before it communicates to stop application compromises and data breaches. To see how to eliminate your network attack surface, visit securityweekly.com forward slash edgewise. Well, welcome everyone. We are here. It's Black Hat 2019 day two. And I am here with Roman Sanikoff. He's the director of analyst services for Recorded Future. Roman, welcome. Thank you. I was having fun talking about your background. Like I just kind of <laughs> <laughs> would continue on that. Sure. We were talking about a D-Link exploit, Joel's yeah. backdoor, one of my favorite ones to talk <laughs> about. Um, and your background's interesting. You are a translator. I was. Uh, for the FBI. So I kind of got into security in a uh, somewhat uh, non-standard way. Mm. Uh, I'm uh, not from the technical route that most people do. Um, I was a translator for the FBI for over 20 years. And uh, around the year 2000, uh, there was uh, the first case I worked on was actually a, um, uh, a blackmail case mm-hmm. of uh, then... Um, not even the mayor yet, but uh, it was Michael Bloom- Bloomberg mm-hmm. by a uh, Russian-speaking uh, hacker out of Kazakhstan. Um, and it was a very interesting case. Yeah. Um, and we got to travel to Kazakhstan as part of the investigation wow. and really investigate the individuals who were uh, who wound up uh, hacking into the Bloomberg terminals at the time. Well, how did you learn Russian? Um, I was actually born in Russia. Oh, okay. And then I wound up getting a degree when I was here uh, yeah. in, uh, um, at the University of Albany. Um, That's and awesome. Um, so it's really interesting but once I had that experience I kind of got hooked mm-hmm. and uh, worked on a lot of cases they've really varied over time mm. um, initially there was a lot of just plain hacking because the security was so poor yeah, that yeah. pretty much anybody could get right, into right, pretty much right. anything uh, then I think around um, the mid uh, aughts, uh, you started uh, seeing a lot more social engineering mm-hmm. um, because I think some of the security was improving, but a lot of the customer service really wasn't used to uh, the idea of the social engineering. Right, right. Um, and so you kind of saw that. Mm-hmm. And then as uh, the end of the 2000 aughts, then you uh, really started seeing some of the more sophisticated the exploit packs, exploit mm-hmm. kits, uh, and uh, the really the smarter criminal kind right. of uh, coming on uh, onto the scene. No, that's, uh, so that's, 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 that's kind of very <laughs> accurate, actually. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so what do you do for Recorded Future today? So for Recorded Future, I'm their analyst of, analy- uh, I'm sorry, I'm the re- uh, director of analyst services, mm-hmm. um, otherwise known as analyst on demand. And what that is, is that um, obviously uh, Recorded Future is an extensive platform that mm-hmm. our clients have access to. Uh, but anytime that they need any additional uh, information, additional help, additional research uh, they reach out to our analyst um, oh. and so like if I, if I find something and I'm like 
this looks kind of interesting, but mm -hmm. I need to know more. They right. come to you and your team and exactly. go, can you research this threat or this attack vector or this campaign or whatever it is, right? Or these threat actors. Exactly. So, yeah. um, some, uh, some of our clients, we have a very wide range of clients. Mm -hmm. Some of our clients have, you know, a CTI department that's maybe two or three people. Mm -hmm. So obviously they don't have the ability to really delve deeply into every threat or alert. Right. That yeah, they, they can't see. spend days on exactly. one particular exactly. thing. Yeah, that's nice. So, so that's one of the fun um, things. The, the notes here said uh, spread of disinformation, mm -hmm. which piques my interest. <laughs> What's this, you got to tell me the story behind sure. this. So that's one of the things that we've been doing a lot of research on. Obviously, over the course of the last uh, few years, uh, you, everybody's heard about social media manipulation, mm -hmm. uh, disinformation campaigns, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Well, and very directly <coughs> tied to Russia and the Absolutely. whole the election. Absolutely. Definitely shined a spotlight yeah, on that, yeah. right? Yeah. One of the things that we've been focusing on is that even though that's become a something that the, kind of the West has focused on over the course of the last uh, you know four or five years, mm -hmm. in reality, a lot of this has been going on for quite some time. Um, some of the threat actors that we've actually engaged with and mm -hmm. spoken with have told us that they've been doing something similar going back to 2004-2005. Interesting. Primarily not targeting the West. A lot of this was mm -hmm. done in former Soviet Union countries, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Russia, Ukraine. Belarus, places mm -hmm. like that. But a lot of these uh, these groups, these kind of, as I like to call them, mom and pop organizations, mm -hmm. uh, they uh, are, um, you know, they'll call themselves black SEO. Um, and so they'll frequently use similar tactics that they've used over the years uh, for search engine uh, optimization yep, yep. and manipulating search engine results mm -hmm. to really translate that to social media mm -hmm. um, and to uh, manipulate the social media and right. to including obviously taking over accounts, uh, creating uh, fake accounts, mm -hmm. large numbers of fake accounts, and also manipulating legitimate users mm -hmm. through things like click trading, for example. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Trading, no. It's kind of a fun uh, topic where if you have people on social media, I think it's predominantly done, again, in Eastern Europe and mm -hmm. former Soviet Union, although I think we've seen some of it done in, in the West as well. But say you want to promote something on social media, you have a small business or mm -hmm. something like that, you can sign up with this company that... This really has both a um, and kind of official website, you know, mm -hmm. looks like it's legitimate, and then does some rather nefarious things as well. But you uh, can sign up with this company and say, hey, um, what they will tell you is if you click on these things or repost or retweet, mm -hmm. you do some of these things for our clients, you will get points that you can then spend to mm -hmm. promote your own things. Oh, so it makes it a lot harder for... Yeah, because they're using actual people exactly. to... These yeah, are almost like mules to... Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's what it is. Oh, it's really... And it, I also think it's tough to know who's actually behind. I mean, mm -hmm. you may say, you know, with your experience, mm -hmm. you may say, well, you know, this Russian actor did mm -hmm. XYZ, but who hired that hacker? Exactly. How funded them? Mm -hmm. Getting that information is sometimes, I mean, how do you know if it's reliable? Right. If they say, well, you know, I was hired by XYZ mm -hmm. country or nation state, mm -hmm. do you believe them? And we'll never truly know, right? right. Yeah. Uh, to some extent, you have to look also at the uh, result 
at yeah. what's being done and who benefited and who from benefits. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you correlate that with some of the things that you hear from the threat actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the other things that's kind of uh, some of the fun stuff that my team does is a lot of our clients they'll do their own research and they'll get to a point where um, even if they're looking at things that we've collected from uh, forums, Mm -hmm. um, it's still relatively open. um, And then they'll get to kind of a wall where you need to actually reach out to the threat actor. I was going to say, you need an insider in a reverse sense, right? You need to be an insider. And obviously I don't want you to disclose any information (laughs) about that, but that, I mean, that, that makes sense that you can have that capability. Mm so that enterprises don't need to exactly. take that risk, exactly. right? And that, yeah. and that makes a, a lot and, of sense. And that's one of the things that uh, a lot of the uh, clients uh, that we speak with will say that either, again, they don't have the wherewithal to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need language skills. You need all sorts of yeah. – or even if they do, they don't, again, like you said, they don't want to take on the uh, potential liability right. of interacting with some of these threat actors. Yeah, because retaliation, mm-hmm. I'm sure as you can attest to, is probably a real thing, right? Retaliation, also, there's always the risk of, um, you know, you'll ask for some sort of sample or something mm-hmm. and um, uh, it may be something that you didn't expect. Yeah, there may be some you extra know? goodies in there. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so you really have to be very careful about um, and you know it, it makes sense to have a specialized group that's focusing on that right. uh, as opposed to you know something in your own enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the underground um, uh, and it's here in the notes I'm very interested on this, what's uh, what's the most purchased malware or types of malware that are being bought and sold uh, on the underground today? Sure. So what we've really seen recently is a resurgence, so to speak, of ransomware. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, ransomware has been around for quite some time. You know, we go back to scareware. We go back to all sorts mm-hmm. of uh, funky things. And then... Oh, yeah. We traced it all the way back from oh, yeah. the first malware. Yeah. We interviewed someone that, that <laughs> done some of that research. Yeah. That's got to be mm-hmm. really fun. Uh, but I remember even with some of the work that I did um, uh, with the Bureau, mm-hmm. uh, we had a, uh, uh, at the time, we had some collaborative work with Russian law enforcement. Yeah. And uh, they brought to us and said, hey, this was again back around 2008, 2009. Yeah. They said, we have a huge problem with, with scareware, with things that are being, you know, the pop-ups that are freezing up computers. Yeah. And um, uh, so this goes back, you know, over so 10 years. I, and I, I I'm really excited to ask mm-hmm. this question. I'm stumbling my words because mm-hmm. I'm so excited, <laughs> and you're the the perfect person mm-hmm. uh, to answer this. So I've been reading articles, obviously, about ransomware and how yep. it's uh, gaining in popularity. Right. I also look at municipalities, specifically in the U.S., yep. cities, towns, mm-hmm. and states. Um, we've seen a number of them fall victim to ransomware. Yep. We've I've seen articles that said that attackers are going after state yes. and local governments. Now they speculated on the motivation. Mm-hmm. Some will say. It's for profit, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of these cities and towns actually do pay. Yes. Some will say it's not for profit, that that's just a front that they're trying to basically disrupt mm-hmm. um, the way things work in the U.S. and use it as a scare tactic, mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned. What's, what's your opinion? Honestly, it's a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if we look at the NotPetya uh, mm-hmm. ransomware that did so much damage, I think it's to this day, it's one of the most destructive mm-hmm. uh, situations going back a couple of years. Um, NotPetya was actually reviewed on one of the uh, top uh, Russian-speaking forums, Exploit, Mm -hmm. a few months prior to kind of being 
put out into the wild. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was still called Pietia. Um, and uh, they, uh, the review was basically, this is pretty good ransomware, but it's really useless because there's almost no way to pay the ransom. So the review right. mm-hmm. was quite negative because they were looking at it as a ransomware, monetary, as right. a monetizing way. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when it was released into the wild, mm-hmm. relatively quickly, we realized that they were never meant to pay ransom, right. uh, that it was really a disruptive service. Although, a funny story, people still figured out a way to make money off of it because they were people who would then weaponize it to uh, destroy evidence. So oh, there were cases, I remember, in Ukraine mm-hmm. where uh, companies that were being um, that were being investigated by domestic law enforcement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would uh, they reached out to I don't remember the the individual's name he was later prosecuted but he would infect them to get rid of any potential <laughs> evidence that uh, was uh, and they would say hey we'd love to hand over all of these right, things to you right but we fell victim to an uh, attack exactly uh, we got no, nothing no, left to tell you, you. Know? Um, so uh, but getting back to your question I think it really is a combination of of the two things mm-hmm. um, ransomware is a funny thing it's actually pretty unpopular with uh, certain people in the community uh, people who consider themselves to be really the more elite uh, hackers because obviously it's incredibly noisy yeah, it kills your infrastructure. Right, you know, it kills your. It puts traffic. everyone on high alert, exactly. right? Because now they're going to look for any signs of malware in exactly. there, right? Yeah, so, so I can see all that. Of the traffic that you are using, all the exploit kits that you may have been using. You're basically all the burning all of your yeah, all your that. tools yeah. and infrastructure. So yep. there were actually uh, some uh, moves or uh, some proposals on some of the major mm-hmm. Russian language forums uh, to ban it altogether mm-hmm. uh, for two reasons. One reason was. Uh, for actually, believe it or not, they had moral qualms to it. They mm-hmm. were saying, "Hey, how would you feel if your grandma is in the hospital and all of a sudden the hospital, you know, right. shuts down?" Right. So there were some bad guys who were coming out and saying that, uh, but a lot of them were predominantly concerned with the uh, the fact that it was destroying all the infrastructure that they had right. spent so much time setting up for their, uh, you know, theft of credentials. And, Not to and mention shining like a spotlight on some of their, their tools and techniques. Absolutely. Actors as yep. well, right? And there's um, there's a company, uh, I think it's Intezza, right? That looks at the yep. signatures behind Integer. the malware. Yep. So I can see yep. the f- sophisticated yep. hacker going like, Intezer, yep. some of my code like ended up exactly. in this ransomware, and now it's noisy. Now everyone in, in the security community is reverse engineering it, and it's going to get tied back exactly. to me, right? Exactly. Yeah. So when you saw the spike in um, cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. um, uh, about a year, year and a half ago. You saw a big shift from ransomware mm-hmm. uh, to uh, crypto miners. Yeah. Uh, because even though they are noisier than, than malware, mm-hmm. they're a lot less noisy than ransomware. Right, right. Um, so you kind of had a um, ransomware, I think, had a substantial decline um, over uh, that time. Right. But the problem with um, kind of trying to combat ransomware is that it is such an easy thing for people who have virtually no skills to use mm. it's really you know the ransomware as a service uh right. you, well, you don't have to worry about being stealthy exactly right? yeah well, and also you don't have to you 
literally you invest and you you buy right. uh, the the ransomware as a service. You go, you buy some traffic, you buy some this, some that, and so you have to know like almost nothing. Absolutely. And DDoS is very pretty similar to being noisy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like that. And, and uh, really compromising a lot of the infrastructure and uh, mm-hmm. the same way as as ransomware. But the fact that you've seen this resurgence, mm-hmm. I think, shows that it's a lot more targeted mm-hmm. because they are targeting uh, entities that will pay Yeah, because they have little option mm-hmm. about whether to pay or not. Um, at the same time, you do see them targeting a lot of uh, public sector entities, yeah. which, like you said, is very disruptive, mm-hmm. more dis- disruptive than uh, targeting uh, private sector. Right. So ostensibly, if you think about it, if you hit some sort of wealthy, you know, uh, conglomerate, uh, you probably would be able to get more than you could from a small municipality. Mm-hmm. And yet, <laughs> they are hitting a lot of the municipalities. Mm. So I think that goes to your point that there are probably a lot of even more nefarious uh, kind of motivation behind uh, mm. what they're doing and why to they're doing it. be disruptive, right? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It, um, that goes to the disinformation campaigns that we're, that we're following is, mm-hmm. you know, they're called influence campaigns, but I think uh, specific influence is really a secondary uh, motivation. Mm-hmm. I think the primary motivation is really to disrupt uh to uh, just engender um friction Mm -hmm. to engender chaos um if you accept the um kind of the hypothesis that i think most people accept that a lot of this is being done by people who are tied to uh the russian government Mm -hmm. and other governments that are not um not super friendly to the Mm -hmm. united states uh and to the west it really it plays into the hands when people domestically um, can see something that looks very chaotic and very un- unappetizing right. happening in the West, be it uh, you know mobs, be it uh, all sorts of uh, uh, you know things that they see as threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's been going on specifically with Russia mm-hmm. since like like legit the beginning of time of like when the countries were established yes, right yes. there's always been yeah. disinformation mm-hmm. campaigns now it's just taking the form in in the cyber realm absolutely um you know it's it's funny that you bring that up but uh for example during the soviet times mm-hmm. uh, there were certain um uh, very well known uh, you know actors and musicians uh, from the US mm-hmm. who were very popular in the in the former soviet union um and they would specifically bring them in uh, and talk about for example if they were african american they would talk about how discriminated they were and really use them as a way to uh, put down and to uh, denigrate uh, the United States and the West in general. Similar how social media can be a voice. And that's something that, in a sense, like you said, that's being repeated yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, it's just that they can really amplify it right. by uh, social media because social media doesn't have those um, the same checks mm-hmm. that more mainstream media used to have. Right. 
Um, are there reports or uh, places you want to point people to for a recorded future to learn more information about what your team gathers, you publicize? Sure. We're actually about to put out a report specifically on uh, disinformation. Mm -hmm. This one's going to be a little bit different from what I was talking about because we're focusing a little bit more on the private sector. Mm -hmm. Most uh, of the discussion about disinformation right now is focused on things like election meddling and mm -hmm. uh, um, you know the various referendums and things like this. We want to uh, we want companies to understand that there are tools and that there are threat actors that are willing to target them for yep. a price, mm -hmm. uh, willing to target them on all sorts of social media, uh, put out fake stories in mm -hmm. both in social media and in more uh, traditional media uh, about these companies uh, for price. Mm -hmm. um, I like to, it's probably not a perfect uh, equivalent, but I like to compare this kind of disinformation and uh, to the DDoS of maybe 2010, yeah. where you saw little mom and pop shops all of a sudden DDoSing mm -hmm. their competitors, you know, down the block mm -hmm. uh, because it was so easy, it was so inexpensive, right. and it was effective. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, DDoS is uh, less effective now. Uh, I think you have to really try to, yeah. you know, uh, and you have uh, various mitigation techniques. Sure. Disinformation doesn't really have much uh, mitigation yet. Right. We really right. haven't figured out how to effectively do that. So if all of a sudden you're a private company and there's a flood of negative publicity that is, uh, again, hitting social media mm -hmm. and then potentially is being reported in mainstream media as a phenomenon, right. it becomes yeah, whole this loop. Cycle exactly. exactly. Yeah. And then you really have to figure out how to deal with that and... Uh, uh, Again, what we're trying to say is that companies have to be very cognizant and really monitor these networks mm -hmm. uh, that are tied into this disinformation mm -hmm. because if they don't, by the time they realize the negative it's publicity, too late. it's already too gone. Late. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so folks can visit the Recorded Future website yep. uh, mm -hmm. and find these reports. Mm -hmm. um, can you say Security Weekly is awesome in Russian? Absolutely. Security Weekly, потрясающий подкаст. Всем надо его слушать. Thank you so much, Roman. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. We're here at Black Hat 2019, day two. Rounding out, rounding out day two, yeah. almost, sort of. I don't know. I've yeah, lost yeah. all track of time. Tail, tail end of, two, of day two. Time has no boundaries here, <laughs> apparently. Uh, I'm excited for our interview today. Uh, Ray DeMeo is the Chief Operating Officer at Versec. That's correct. Ray, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, Julian always seems to, to sneak on to a lot of different segments. <laughs> this is the second interview at, at a Black Hat conference. Yeah. You've been on Paul Security Weekly. It's nice to have you back, Julian. Oh, uh, for our audience, introduce your full name and title, please. Sure. Uh, I for some reason, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, no worries. Yeah, Julian Zottel. I work for Raytheon as a cyber and information operations subject matter expert. Now, Julian, you're still working, obviously, with the Versec folks on uh, a lot of projects for your customers at Raytheon. Uh, we are, yeah. We're, that's a continual thing. I mean, mm -hmm. Ray and I have known each other for a number of years, and um, most recently, actually, it's funny, a lot of times we uh, introduce this product to you know, help customers out and things yeah. like that. But for the first time, I think we're actually working on the same project, which is amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So I, I want to get a little update on the product. Um, and we talk about runtime application memory protection, right? That's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, which uh, is it go on the operating system, Windows, Linux, Mac OS, and does it matter what the application is? I guess it's a good start. Yeah, sure. Great. So it uh, doesn't matter. So firstly, anything x86. 
Okay. So Windows family, Linux, Unix family. Yep. It's not not Mac it's OS yet, or not yeah, not yet. Okay. Um, I mean it, that's it, fair. When more, we're talking more, about more consumer focused, yeah, we're yeah. focused on servers protecting server workloads. Yep. Okay. We get asked all the time, "Oh, can you do endpoints?" Could, but it's really about bandwidth. About where do you yep. spend your time? And so focus. the so we're trying to do this one thing really well. The operating systems, Windows and Linux, that are running applications in a production environment, right? Exactly. For, to serve users, right? Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Right. That's good. Um, and so um, when in containers, that's where I wanted to go next. Sorry, it's been a long day. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've done a container deployment. I love working with containers. It's it's great to see adoption grow. When I first started, it was kind of on that cusp of, you know, will containers be a thing to here to stay? And that was about nine months ago. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, now it's now it's now it's everywhere. So containers are here to stay, and it, now uh, I feel like everyone should be asking the question, how do I protect my containers? But I think more people need to be asking that. So obviously, you run inside of a container. Perfect environment. Perfect question. So we protect the workload. So mm-hmm. really, whether it's on bare metal, whether it's on a VM, or whether it's in a container, mm-hmm. right? The protection travels with that workload. Right. So this is yeah, this is what you know, Gartner was highlighting in yeah. uh, that um, uh, their market guide for um, right. for workload protection. Yep. So that's it. That it's the portability of it, mm-hmm. and it's this essential need and, and to be able to protect no matter where it resides. I don't like the word agent <laughs> for a lot of reasons, right? I think uh, people have too many preconceived notions about the word agent. Yeah. But I'm assuming you had to put some type of software or hook onto a container hate or a system, the, hate right? the word yeah, agent. Yeah, no hate one the likes word the word agent, right? <laughs> we it's call a it a probe. Uh, and for this reason, uh, it's we're, we're not... We're not using we're not using any appreciable amount of memory or CPU within mm-hmm. uh, within that workload. The whole idea is then to offload that to a separate uh, analysis engine, mm-hmm. expressly for that purpose, right? So that you right. have minimal, you know, low low uh, single digit mm-hmm. uh, overhead, if any. And so that's what's important. I, I think there's a real distinction. We've already made it between endpoints and workloads, right? Sure. And I think an endpoint agent has a completely different context versus uh, I update my Docker file with one line and then I've got your hook and I'm off to the races, right? To me, that's not really, in it, that's not an endpoint agent, right? True, true, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, it's amazing, however, what we see in some some data center environments, right. the amount, right, that total amount of CPU that's mm-hmm. uh, taken by many legacy things, that agents, I'll use right. that word, oh, yeah. that, are, yeah. that are added. So how do you get that off? So it's a good thing, right? As we as we move forward to this mm-hmm. container world, hopefully that'll hold th- that whole world will start to shift and, and mm-hmm. be far more efficient. So it's it's yeah, we're excited. So uh, how does it help protect my in this case container? Right? I guess it doesn't matter what it's running on. I'm just selfishly asking about containers. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're doing, right? We're we're able to map the DNA, right? We're able mm-hmm. to map the the binaries of code, and then. Uh, once we we do that at boot or at the at the instantiation mm-hmm. of the of that instance, and then as you go into run, then we're we're tracking that mm-hmm. right. We're able to see function call by function call. Are you is it is it going where it's supposed to go? Is it staying on the map, or is someone is some threat actor trying to force that code to go mm-hmm. in in a bad location? So because of that, uh, because of that, you need to be able to protect no matter where it resides. Right, and so. 
so whether I guess the the answer to that is it's the same, right? Whether it's whether mm-hmm. it's on bare metal or whether it's in a container. Yet as we move into the container world, they're being spun up more quickly. Mm-hmm. They're being spun up more broadly in in a much wider arc of uh, of distribution. So so it's important, and maybe mm-hmm. more important um, or and harder to harder to do, if I'll say it this way, than than it's been in the past at any mm-hmm. time in the past. Yeah, I, I was just going to add okay. one thing to that. It's like kind of interesting when you think about it, like uh, applications run in containers and stuff, right? So, you know, you could spin up five instances or you could spin up a thousand, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and with a product like Versec, it, they'll all be protected, which is kind of interesting. So it's the, the protection, right? You're going to stop that co- at code execution. Correct. Yeah. Okay, that's Correct. awesome. That's, that's right. Awesome. It's detect and protect, right? Yeah. This, is, this, is the, this, is the new this is the new world, world. we live in now, believe right? me. That's, I think that's <laughs> one theme that I've gleaned. You're lucky to be at this stage in the Black Hat one thing I've gleaned is uh, many, most that came on the show talked about how protection is is the game now. Like yep. detection is yep. great, but if we can't, if we got a thousand containers, oh yeah, great that I can detect they're all being <laughs> right. you know, someone's breaking into all of them. Awesome, I I need to protect it because too I late, can't, yeah. too late, you've been compromised. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. So, and we were actually talking a little bit earlier about that. Um, there are instances where you want. You know, you can stop it in IPS mode, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you want to stop the process, etc. Or sometimes you want to let it go on, right? Um, right. You know, to investigate what it's doing, or maybe making calls out to the internet or whatever. You know, Mm -hmm. because if we can do that now, if it, you know, if we stop the process because we see it's malicious, okay, that's good. Mm -hmm. If we stop a process after it's made DNS calls and things like that, Mm -hmm. now we can implement the protections of the the borders because we know what it's going after. Right. Yeah. So (laughs) when it's looking at the Function calls and how is it determining good versus bad? So we map we map the the code itself, right? We're able to map the binaries. Mm-hmm. And we're able to our IP is essentially our ability to know just by looking at the binaries what is what is a legitimate what is a function call, mm-hmm. and therefore if we know all of them in in a piece of code, then we we can also understand at runtime if they're being forced or if Execution is being forced to jump into a Do place where different. it's not supposed to go. Right. So now, th- th- now that's you, at the most primitive yeah, description. Yeah, yeah. But you but can use the word machine learning. That. It's okay. We don't we don't deduct <laughs> any points from using <laughs> no. machine learning. But like, do you do you have maps of like known good? By, or do you build the map and then put that off on the, on the so cloud? We, so we, we build it instantaneously, mm-hmm. and and it's this right. If if you say, well, gee, okay. Uh, baseline my application or my environment on a good day well what's a good day right we've Mm. seen this path right and then how much time does it take well don't know right or it takes hours or days looking inside the code to build the map and then looking at variances from that so that's not our world right our world is to be able to build that map Mm -hmm. within a couple of seconds or less as you as you initiate that application i gotcha so so as you you boot or initiate that Mm -hmm. application we can make that instantaneously and so, why is that important? That's important because you're making sure that it's what's running is actually the code that's been mapped. Oh, it's I not see. Some yeah, older you don't, don't want to store it, cause, yeah, because you won't get the current snapshot, right? Especially with containers, it can change sure. oh, yeah, every minute. For sure. Yeah. So, so this is this is about this is about certainly speed, mm-hmm. right? How do you how do you know the moment something jumps return or into programming some mm-hmm. form of rop job type of attack we actually we started out we looked at that that bright red line on the national vulnerability database mm-hmm. these memory exploits and said we got to stop that that's that's our mission that's that's what this company is going to be about mm-hmm. because we're 
as we set out to do that, we also then became uh, quickly became able to cover you know much much broader portion of that entire mm-hmm. uh, national vulnerability database. Is it just memory exploitations in in a traditional mm-hmm. sense, or is it other manipulations that are just due to configuration? In Linux, for example, right? There's been a lot of recent attacks where file permissions and other things get me execution, but I'm not necessarily like doing a buffer overflow, for example. So we, we've also, <laughs> we've since added, we've since added process monitoring, mm-hmm. file system monitoring. Uh, we're able to also look at um, interpreted code as well. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a number of uh, additional capabilities. But I come back to the core, right? Where grassroots, where did it come from? And it's right. about this ability to map the binaries from start. Mm-hmm. And map beha- map uh, what is legitimate behavior. Mm. And so therefore, therefore it's, it's not this, gee, I've got to learn and I've got to baseline over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Gee, I baselined on Friday, Monday morning, baseline's off, right? right there's right. the solutions like that. And we know in those environments where uh, customers certainly that and prospects that we talk to mm-hmm. say, gee, I don't enable protection because, gee, it's out of date or I can't be sure that it's, it's, what, it's mm-hmm. the same thing that, that we wanted to happen when we first ran the, the baseline. Right. So yeah, assuming like command execution in my web app, that would probably flag, right? Because it doesn't. Exactly. This function normally doesn't like step out and execute a shell. It never has done that in the code. It doesn't say it should do that. Essentially, right. And actually, earlier I was in one of the demos. I hadn't seen the newest version, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so uh, we were checking out the newest version. And one of the things they did was drop a file on the web server itself, yeah, remotely, and it picked it right up. Gotcha. Yeah. Now okay. it's, yeah. Yep. Perfect example. Not an in-memory thing. Right, but right. It, it's obviously odd behavior. I mean, don't get <laughs> me wrong. We, we still see, a t- as you mentioned, a ton of memory attacks, uh, kernel-level attacks, and things of that nature. But we also have the ones I always liked that didn't rely on that because memory is very volatile, right? Uh, the more reliable ones for me as a pen tester are always the, the abusing a configuration or some other way to get execution that didn't involve memory. So we've brought we've broadened our capability. Great, yeah, mm-hmm. great example. Glad you could see those. No, uh, yeah, the some of those later. We yeah. always like to bring our latest and, and, and greatest yeah. demos and, and show uh, as many people. And of course, uh, Julian can talk, you know, can talk deep with our team on, <laughs> on how yeah. do we do it. And yeah. you showed us some of yours too, yeah, which, is, which was impressive. Yeah, so the team liked to see some of his own exploits that he's built. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and did it catch you? It's always a cat and mouse game, right? We didn't try that. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, this looks like an exploit, you know, that I may or may not have developed at some point, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, here it is, you know? And they were like, oh, that's cool, you know? And so, yeah, so we'll we, try it so out. So we can talk shop like yeah. that. Yeah. That's but awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. That's great. <laughs> um, so uh, what, what's the customer experience like? Is it, and uh, in, in when do they implement it? Is it usually like post-breach or pre-breach or... Like when you drop it in, like what's the thing they're like? Oh my God, I would have never gotten this anywhere else. This is this is wonderful. Like what's the reaction? Well, ideally for everyone, right? It's pre pre breach, mm-hmm. right? We have conversations where someone's been breached and they don't want it to happen again, right? So right. you look at so one of the things we're able to do, of course, at the same time is also see, you know, where where did this breach take place? How did it happen? If they've captured the malware or if they've, and we've been asked, we've been asked for, from some of the people we both know, gee, can you look at this? This was used, being used to mm-hmm. take down a piece of critical infrastructure or uh, some, some pretty important system. And we've looked at it and said, here's how this works in our environment. 
And then the conversation goes forward. Let's mm-hmm. do a POC. Let's do a pilot. Let's throw that same or others that are similar that we've known target those kinds of environments. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a powerful and compelling result that comes from that. So people are excited, A, because of, so a, because of this ability to see real time. Mm-hmm. Then, number two, automation. This ability to then, pro, uh, within, within a very short period of time, Right before mm-hmm. before some a threat actor can exfiltrate data, before they can take down a system, we can then throw a protection action. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's it's this ability to have seen a, a zero days, have seen something uh, that's either either known or hasn't been patched, right. un- either unknown or has not been patched. And so so that's very compelling as well because so many people are worried about gee, we'll always say patch right, eat your broccoli, you know, <laughs> do these, yeah, brush yeah, your yeah, teeth, yeah, do yeah, these yeah, health yeah. things. Yet yet the time window is is uh, often longer than anyone any enterprise wants it to be mm-hmm. right before they can marshal the resources to do actually do the to actually do that that patching or take that protective action so we're able to do it faster the protective actions what are some of the best uh, use cases uh in in how flexible is it so it's very flexible we have both uh, what we call what we characterize as micro protection actions and then macro actions mm-hmm. so micro ac- micro uh, protection actions can you kill a threat, right? Mm-hmm. Can you kill a process you know, right there at the application? Macro, can you go back to a WAF, for example, mm-hmm. instantiate or create a rule, make that automated, as opposed to, gee, it's got to run up, here's an alert that has to go up to a dashboard, someone has to look at it in the right. sim, someone right. has to decide, you know, fill out a slip or whatever, uh, a mm-hmm. ticket, and then make it. Way too many bad things can <laughs> happen uh, mm-hmm. before that ever. And, and of course, the other, the other use case to your question, the other use case we see is how do you up-level the, the task, the, the workload that you know, our precious people, resources, are, you know, that we're trying to hire, mm-hmm. that we're trying to retain, they're precious, right? They're, they're hard to, it's hard to get the skill set and it's hard to retain. It's hard to keep them interested. So if you can now take, uh, make a lot of that more um, immediate action automated, and mm-hmm. then and then move up to here's here's some rich forensic uh, forensic evidence where were they trying to attack exactly where in the application mm-hmm. at what time point where did uh, where did they originate mm-hmm. so to so that uh, that level of visibility you hear visibility a lot right yeah but yeah but I this heard it visi- a lot this week yeah so <laughs> uh, so there it is but but that's that's powerful and so that uh, the conversation also also goes to how can you move that to uh, how, how can you move that uh, to up leveling the skill set mm-hmm. and the uh, and the work? What about uh, kind of moving stuff around based on uh, an attack? So I take my container. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's an attack, and I can move it somewhere else. I can talk to the Kubernetes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the cloud. Can I talk to my cloud and uh, put rules in there or move infrastructure around based on attacks to quarantine it? Well, this this is mm-hmm. kind of in line with some of the things you were. I was uh, alluding to. Yep. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't see why that wouldn't be possible, especially with the advent of SOARs and all that fun yeah. stuff, right? You know, if you kick off a process, you say, hey, look, this is attacking this section. The SOAR will be hopefully smart enough, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. you know, to move that either around. Um, we've seen stuff where, okay, it's deployed on Linux, you know, et cetera, or something's running on Linux. It's attacking the OS. Let's move it to Windows, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's a different attack surface, yeah. and now it's going to take them longer, and now we can initiate better order protections mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. you know. Um, is the API open so people can could write those integrations if they wanted to and customize sure, sure, the actions yeah, sure, that are Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we can, the orchestration part's really not 
that's not the hard part, right? Or we don't. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's good. It's doable. It's, like it's flexible. Something bad is happening right. here, right? <laughs> yeah. Something just needs to catch right. that and what, go. What do you oh, want? that means I go do this, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, so we're uh, we're it, it's really it is actually exciting when you can see the number of integrations and mm-hmm. we th- we think of we come up with ideas, but more often than not, it's the people we talk to that come up with ideas, and and they're like, "Can In you practice, do that?" It's yeah. like, "Yeah, we can do that." So. Um, yeah, earlier we were talking. It keeps growing. We were talking a little bit about different use case, which is can we do this for malware analysis? Mm. You know, if you have a process that you know really well, and a piece of malware is attacking it, right? Well, their system gives us the ability. They have the the binary mapped out, right? So mm-hmm. they know where that malware hit. Um, so might speed up malware analysis too. We were kind of playing around with that idea earlier. We're like, okay, maybe well, this is something we're going to investigate, you know? Right. Yeah. And I'm sure you could determine if that maps back to a known vulnerability or not a known exactly. vulnerability. Because like right. you said, Julian, yeah. you know exactly in the binary where it hit. You go back through patches and go, hold on. That there's wasn't no a CVE. Vulner- <laughs> yeah, there's no CVE. There's no <laughs> patch for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Right. So you're covering known and unknown, of course, mm-hmm. landscape. And, and that's a big part of our mission. Yep. And uh, the dashboard that comes along with it, I'm assuming that's in the cloud. And like, wh- what does that look like? Or we've got a dashboard. We like it. It's it's you know a lot of effort's been put into being mm-hmm. able to you know not only show graphically you know applications that are protected, applications mm-hmm. that are under attack, and then the ability, of course, to drill down into the data behind that. So all great. Yet there's plenty of dashboards out there too. So yeah, we continue. Like you know, the we dashboard's the API today, right? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. So so. We can cont- we have we have a very you know useful flexible uh, informative uh, uh, dashboard yet everything we make available right mm-hmm. through the API mm-hmm. so what we we do an integration with uh, Phantom we sh- we showed you the Phantom mm-hmm. integration yep. awesome of course uh, and, but anything else yeah it, it doesn't matter right sticks taxi yeah, or the, uh, the sore platform is it, a logical it, it's, place it's I all think, there right. it. yeah for sure so for sure. so we have so we have a we have an orchestration engine mm-hmm. right that that can take these protective actions uh, ourselves. But certainly, uh, a sore platform could do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> if people want to get a, a trial or a demo, uh, is there a trial or and or a demo? Like, how does that work? It's fine. I I just like our audience to know what mm. they can expect. Oh sure. If yeah. they want to try, it, they're listening to this. And go. I I really want to try that. Like, can they go Excellent. get a free trial? Or they have to register for a demo. Either's fine. We can so you can go to our website and you can register for a demo for okay. sure. Yep. If you want to do a trial, if someone was serious enough about saying, "Hey, I want to take this for a test drive," we do a couple things depending on the customer and depending on the situation. Of course, we can set up in in your local environment. Additionally, we can set up we can spin up environments in our mm-hmm. own lab and have you VPN in and run whatever you want on it. So we can provide uh, we can provide applications. We can provide exploits. You can bring your own. But we we try to make it very flexible. Mm-hmm. So we we find you guys have seen this, right? The hardest thing for for many people is just setting up the environment. Yeah. So we can spin up an environment pretty quick, mm-hmm. and we can make an instance available of of our um, our application or our our solution, and then a pretty wide range of applications as well. So awesome. So that's. Um, so we try to ma- we try to make it easy. <laughs> On our website, you can click versec.com. You can say, uh, "I want to see a demo," and then you can also, of course, fill out a form, and we can have that conversation toward doing a pilot. Fantastic, great, Julian. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.